There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, we got a lot to cover today. Uh, Giannis is here. I'm going to do intros the opposite way we normally do them. So I'm going to start with Giannis because I'm so happy to see him. Giannis <laughs> here. Sam Laurie's here, who you would know if you listen to uh, um, our Close Calls series. He tells the, the, the tremendous the mud puddle story called the mud puddle. Former game warden. You got to get way closer to that mic. I guess I'm supposed to acknowledge it. Yeah, no, you'd say something like, "Oh, good to be here." Oh, Steve, it's great to be here. There you go. Great. We'll we'll, uh, we'll get to you in, in greater detail later on. Brody's <laughs> here. Crimson, the lazy boy with a crazy ass shirt on. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what's what's that kind of animal? Sloth. Yeah, she's got a like a Cosmos pizza slice sloth shirt. Love that. Uh, Phil's here. Paul Lewis from FHF. This is the first time you've been on the show? No. Yeah, first time. Is it really? Yep. I, uh, God, you look familiar over there with those headphones on. <laughs> That's right. No, never been in You've here. never done it before? Never. You sure? I, yeah. I, I only live a few blocks away, it seems like, but first time in here. Yes, yeah, something about you and the headphones seems familiar. I don't know. It's probably shine off my head. I mm. don't know. You send Rick down here now and then. Yeah, Rick comes down a lot. Rick Hutton. So Rick Hutton, who you've seen, and he's been on the show, uh, Rick Hutton's like, I don't know, boss? Yeah, he likes to think so. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> Paul Lewis. And then we have a uh, special guest, Ray Lockhart. Ray, so if you paid attention a long time ago, we did a, a fundraiser for the local public school. And uh, Ray won that. Won the chance to come to the studio. Is it everything you dreamed of so far? Uh, it's exceeded my expectations. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really and you started yet. This guy's already happy. <laughs> Uh, quick announcement, the, the, the FUDs. So this is an internal explanation. It, it, this is a, I'll give you some production thing. Have I explained this before, Corinne? Like what SRME means and all that? <clears throat> I don't believe so. Mm, I don't think so. You've mentioned it briefly, just in passing, I think. Okay, in the production world, um, I don't know if this is across the board, but in the production world that I'm accustomed to, you come up with acronyms when you're packing boxes. Like production equipment, you use acronyms. So in the ZBZ offices in the old days, when we operated out of there, we'd have, like, if our show was going out on the road, the Pelican cases would all have masking tape on it that would say S-R-M-E. So it'd be like Stephen Rinella, Meat Eater, beyond the things. And then it was um, A-B-N-R would be a bunch of Pelicans, and that would be Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations, and on and on and on. So we've adopted that. A little bit. The FUDS calendar is the fucked up old deer stands calendar. It's back in stock. It might be sold out again. An aggressive order this time, Phil. Yeah, speaking of like behind the scenes, we're recording this several days before you will hear it. And the calendars are back in stock. They are on sale. But moving at an astonishing clip. Yes. So there is a small chance that by the time you hear this, they will not be in stock anymore, but you should uh, try your luck and check it out. Yeah. And this isn't one of those things they do like uh, on the radio and stuff where they'll say like, they're going fast. So act now. I'd always ask myself, well, if they're going fast, why are they buying an advertisement? Do you know what I mean? Like I I felt like I was being manipulated. You were. Like they weren't really going fast. Nope. They're not like worried about you getting one, but these, but to be honest, in all honesty, these are uh, moving like hotcakes. It's just like the vindication, the vindication keeps flowing in. Um, it's going to give me more, po- I feel like it's going to give me more leverage to do the Chetiquette book, which is Chester on etiquette. You know about this, Yanni? No. Yeah. So Ch- Chester wants to do a book. Oh, he was telling us about fishing etiquette. Well, yeah, but I need him. He needs to think way it? bigger. Right. He wants to do a fishing etiquette book. I think it needs to be the, the Chetiquette book of outdoor etiquette. And it's Chester on all things outdoor etiquette. So it even would include, we're going to start doing, we're, he's going to start, we just today, Corinne and I were emailing about, he's going to start doing little guest segments so we can sort of test the appetite, public appetite. Uh, he'll do guest segments. In which he'd explain, like, you're on a trail, and you're walking, and here comes a rider, a horseman. Mm-hmm. Is that a good term for that? A horseman? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd say horseman. What's etiquette? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you are walking down a trail, and there's a biker. Let's say you're the biker, and you're biking, and you're coming up behind someone. What's etiquette? I like it. And usually they're screaming on your right, on your right. And you're so confused. You like go right or, you know, like it's so this whole, the whole world of etiquette, outdoor etiquette. Steve, would that include a uh, chapter on uh, fishing against docks oh. and sprinklers? And uh, Yep. He'd get into all that floating etiquette. Yeah. Dock etiquette. Yeah. 
He needs to he needs to start thinking big. He wanted to do just fishing, but I think it's a great idea, outdoor etiquette. And then I think there's a lot of region like there's like regional specific etiquette things probably. Oh yeah. Uh, Remember when you were down in uh, hunting ducks in North Carolina? All that craziness about the blinds. Oh yeah. Like, we can't even really get into yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's we don't have enough too. time. Um, I saw quite a few comments after when on Instagram when we <clears throat> announced that these uh, calendars are back in stock. Quite a few people were writing to say that uh, man, it'd be great if you guys just did like a. Uh, like a big coffee table book. There's people that refuse to buy the calendar because they're waiting for the book. <laughs> and this is all leading up to the book. Good. I think Ross is into the book idea. To uh, anyone who's going to send in more pictures of uh, their tree stands, give us some background. We need a story with that stand when you send in your uh, submissions. <clears throat> yeah, that would help a lot. Because we just had to make up stories for all the other well, ones. Well, we did some this. digging as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, That's we not... we got creative with some some of them. Well, no, you guys did a good job because one of, well, it was a Chris Gill photograph, but it was from my family's property in Wisconsin. Yep. The, the and, real, real high stand. Yeah, the real high stand. And you guys did a good job. Because yeah. without knowing the background, you guys did a good job of, uh, you know, painting a good yeah, but Dang we we stab at it. We'd love to have the real info. Uh oh, another thing, another uh, small. Yeah, so so those are back in stock. Another another small announcement. Uh, waterfowl season kickoff. We have a um a new episode up it's out on YouTube, and this is good because this is if you've been hearing, you know, everybody always hears Corinne's voice. This is a chance to see Corinne in the Goose Woods. Uh it is a goose film. A speckle belly goose hunt between three uh, women that work here. So Hillary, it was her first time ever hunting. Samantha Bates, who's a producer on our Netflix show. Corinne Schneider, producer is hunting. Along with Jonathan Wilkins of Black Duck Revival. So you can go check that hunt out now. Plug it, Corinne. Say something that uh, make people sell people on it. Uh, It's a standalone we don't normally do that here. It's probably one of the first standalone videos we've got. We normally have stuff in series. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we had a fantastic time with Jonathan. Um, he was a really sensitive and solid mentor for all of us. It's beautiful landscape. I don't think anything at Meat Eater, uh, I don't think we've had any Meat Eater hunts filmed uh, involving the spec Goose species? Do you think we have? Have we speckle bellies? I yeah, don't know. Not that I probably know. not. Um, Can you make the noise of a speckle belly? No. <laughs> oh, that was close. You're getting there. With the dog. <laughs> Work that in. Go a little bit higher. Do you get some gunplay in on that episode, Crin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's For what sure. I want to know. Is how many you, shotgun shells did you shoot? Oh, yeah. You can see the trials and tribulations of our of our two day hunt. Uh, there's some funny moments and some poor shooting form, and then you can see the failure, and then the turnaround, Great. and then the success. Are you one of those kind of goose hunters who, when everybody shoots, you're like, I got that one! I got that one! <laughs> I was dead on! No. Actually, that was one of the most challenging parts of the hunt. Um, we We were in Arkansas in December. And in order, our camo was like these white uh, painter suits. Suit exactly the white painter suits, 
and we were kind of in a in a long row of folks um and you kind of sit up like you just use your abdominal muscles to sit up and really quickly like when you pop up rest your uh put your gun butt into your shoulder and pick one goose out and shoot and i was terrible at that because there were so, i mean it was really there were so many birds in the sky it was incredible incredible and they were so loud but there were so many and to just like identify one yeah. and then to follow it and do that like paintbrush technique yep. that you've mentioned to me a couple of times and like i think after my major failure the first day i called up yanni and i was like what do i do i'm like aiming at the ass of the animal and i'm missing and so he's like you got to Aim like in front of it and like where you know it's you want to greet them. You want to yeah. greet them with yeah. the shot. Yeah. Uh, there's a quail hunting thing. Like aim at them all, you get none. Oh, okay. Aim at one, you get two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty damn true. So I don't do what you asked because I failed a lot, but then like had a success, which was fun. But yeah, go check it out on YouTube. What's the, like? What's the best way to find it? I guess just go to our YouTube channel. Yeah, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, it's I think it's the most recent thing that we've released. It's called Specklebelly Goose Hunting with Jonathan Wilkins. Just that, pretty straightforward. Uh, so go watch it. Enjoy. Um, auction house of oddities. So phase one is over. What do we what do we call them? It's not phases. They're uh, groups. Groups. The group one auction is over. So we're on to the group two auction. Do you know how much my pheasant tail went for? <sighs> yeah. Do you know? I I saw some random numbers that were thrown around, but then people were wondering if it was real or not. Yeah, it's abs- yeah, it's absurdly high. <laughs> <laughs> it's absurdly high. Now I feel like I should have kept held on to that because who knows what it could have been worth in another five years. For Yanni's pheasant tail. <laughs> <laughs> First pheasant tail. Hey, I might shoot another pheasant this year, and then we could auction off my second second pheasant tail. Yeah, that'll yeah. go for more, right? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, oh, this auction group. This includes the uh, puppy, Danielle's puppy, an actual live puppy. It is a yeah, and you, and you do you like dogs more than I do? It's a droth hour. <laughs> A Deutsch Drothauer. Of course. All Drothauers are Deutsch. So Danielle Pruitt, <laughs> our Wild Foods editor, That's is so contributing damn. this puppy, an offspring of her dog. So this is a high-test damn dog. Oh, they do it all. Yeah. Including the fox in the box. Yeah. And you can... Uh, and other- Danielle's, then they come in the house, they turn off the hunting, and they just become couch lap dogs yeah. and just family dogs. We interviewed her at length about this dog, but she's going to have the dog. We'll probably get her on and talk some more about the dog. We should do that, Corinne. Okay. Have her come in and talk before it's too late. Have her talk more about the dog. Even more, yet again. Like again, just to drive up the, the bidding. Okay. And remember, all like when you go to the auction house of oddities, all, all the money all the money goes to, the, to our land access initiative. So it's not like you're giving us the money. You're giving the money for us to do the land access initiative projects. We got a handmade river hawk knife. Oh, here's another one. Our, uh, remember the gnome project where we had the gnome packing out? It was my brother's vision of a gnome packing out a unicorn in his backpack. So we commissioned that with an artist. He's We're auctioning off his original gnome sketch signed by the illustrator. So this is like the ancestral original sketch 
of the gnome with a severed unicorn's head in his backpack. So in his bow, he's got his crazy gnome bow and he's walking through the woods. They are, the original artwork is for sale at the auction house of oddities. Oh, now we got a collection of prototypes. So we just did a new uh, desk skull mount, like for putting uh, freedom mounts. If you want to like formerly known as a Euro mount, but you want to put a freedom mount on a stand on your desk, all the prototypes that, that went into making that one. We got Brody's got a black bear baculum. Oh. Also known as a pecker bone. Yes, sir. It's a drink stirrer. Do whatever you want with it, man. Yeah, bro, he doesn't care. It's your it's your pecker bone. What's the largest baculum of a mammal in the world? Walrus. I know that a walrus is big enough to use as a cane. That would be it. Is it the biggest in the world? Yeah. Yeah. You know how you can estimate estimate a, a bear's rough size by the width of its pad? Oh, yeah. I think it's the same thing with length of the baculum. Is that true? I don't know. It was with this one. Oh, like you measured the baculum and added an inch? Oh, time? you got an add an inch? Then it's not On the true. Pe- when you measure a bear's footprint, you add an inch to get squared. Then I'm not right. Which is pretty damn reliable. Yeah. Like a five-foot bear is going to have a four-inch wide pad. This one it's was... It's very reliable. Inches to feet, it was a good match. I feel like by the time you get your hands on the baculum, you probably know how big the bear is. Yeah. That's a good point. It's a good point, but <laughs> if anyone wants to know how big the bear was... That's an excellent point. <laughs> But it is like, it's still a good little trivia bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my boy, my six-year-old the other day, we were talking about what all had baculums and didn't have baculums. And he said, people do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And it stumped me for a minute. Because I was like, should do that? And I was like, no, they definitely <laughs> Did the conversation end there? He was very adamant that they had a pecker bone. Um... Oh, so anyways, uh, we announced last week, is it like, so in the first round of the Auction House of Oddities, when you you could go in and sign up to get that bottle of skunk essence yep. that we extracted from skunks. Yep. No more. It's gone. Gone. The new free thing, the new free sign up item at the Auction House of Oddities is a chance to come to the studio to participate in Trivial Pursuit, not, not Trivial Pursuit, that's someone else's game. What's our thing called? Trivia? Meat Eater Trivia. You get to come and play Meat Eater Trivia with us. So that's the new thing you can win. Um, that'll be the second time ever we've ever allowed someone to come in here. The first time is today with our friend Ray. Awesome. So starting today, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to this on launch day, starting today through Halloween, you can bid on all these items, including the new dog and everything. Um, and then for free, you can sign up for a chance to come hang out with us in the studio to play Meat Eater Trivia with Spencer Newhart, right? We've had a lot of listeners on this podcast reach out to us about donating items, which is very generous of you. So we've had like the, the NFL dudes with the jersey. We've had uh, Major League Baseball dudes with other stuff. Artists. What all? Lots of stuff. A lot of artists. Uh, want to donate stuff to the auction house of oddities and uh if you want to do that here's what you need to do you just email just email meat eater at the meat and then uh in the subject line do auction donation and uh corey will get you squared away and sent over to the right person am i saying that right corinne mm-hmm. okay steve if i wanted to donate a signed book of game warden tales 
and have you guys sign it as well. Would that be of interest? Oh, yeah. And you don't even need to email that email. I'll leave it to you, you right here. <laughs> I'm not going to make you jump through hoops. I brought it right here today. I'm not going to make you jump through hoops. You can just do it. We'll just do it right now. Oh, that's a hardcover. That's, yeah, that's the quality one. Most people buy that one. Oh, really? That was a little joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they uh, no, we'll do that for sure. We'll Absolutely. save you the email. Yep, yep. That's perfect. Uh, so anyways, Ray Lockhart is here all the way from Maine. He won the Hawthorne Elementary School auction that we put on earlier. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, do, you, do you have any uh, messages you want to broadcast to the broader world? Um, like say something to your mom? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I'm not on uh, any social media or any kind of stuff. I specifically stay off of there. Yeah. I try to keep myself, but just excited to be here. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this is really cool. Really, uh, really like the brand and been following you guys for a long time. So do you, uh, more power to you on social. Do you stay off social um, just because you haven't gotten around and gotten onto it or do you hate it? Uh, just never felt like it was something I wanted to, it was really probably staying away from some of the family that I didn't really want to connect with on Facebook, you know? Like, oh yeah, you know, like they'll find you. Yeah, yeah, the arm's length and then they, and then they come and find you. Friends, the same thing. You know, yeah. I got a circle of friends that I have a hard enough time keeping up with as, as it is. So I am a consumer, obviously for your guys' stuff and things like that. But, uh, it turns out to have been one of the better decisions I made. Cause I feel like it's a rabbit hole. It's tough to pull out of yeah, once, for you're, sure. once you're done. So That's yeah. Good. Thank you. Did you let the kids do it when they were growing up? Uh, yeah, I mean, my wife and my wife does all the, all that stuff and just feeds it to me. So mm. I, I get at arm's length, you know, feedback off of social media, but I have enough buffering system in there. So you know that some friend of yours that you haven't seen for 25 years got a new dog, new and baby stuff like in that. the family, all yeah. that stuff. I get it all filtered and report, report out and it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot more efficient that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here's a note that came in, uh, through TRCP and it was wild. It was widely broadcast as well, but, uh, TRCP has been pretty focused on, CWD, uh, and there's these, these new like major outbreaks, CWD outbreaks going on, chronic wasting disease, which if you're late to the game is, uh, uh, I'm not too far off when I say it's like the deer and elk version of mad cow disease. Um, new outbreaks in Texas, new outbreaks in Pennsylvania. One just recently occurred in Wisconsin, including it's one of the most, if not the most, extensive web of deer shipments from a CWD positive facility on record, according to industry officials. There's a deer farm in Taylor County that sold 387 deer to 40 facilities in seven states since 2016 that were infected with CWD. Unbelievable. Do you still, and no one wants to do anything to curb it, like anything meaningful. It, it that's something that's got to change. The deer farmers have uh, power. <laughs> yeah, but how are they finding out they're positive? So there's testing involved. Is it after the fact? I don't so, know. So, I mean, I would, would that, imagine that, they get tested when they're shipped across state lines. There's got to be some kind of protocols going on for that. But that doesn't come in before they're sent out. So, in other words, there's not a there's not yeah, a, there's I, not a gating I, item to let them out of the state before they. I, I know, know they'll sometimes go into they'll go into a facility and have 100 percent infection rates inside a facility, and then you can go look at where that facility sent to. Yeah, I'm just wondering how do you that, that'd be a way to get in front of it is like they do with other things get the get the test back before you greenlit the ship and. 
Well, they're letting the captive. They're letting the captive deer industry, and it's like it's not even. Uh, it's it's. You know, in, in quotes, it's like captive deer hunting. It's not. It, this is not like agriculture. It's not like supplying like venison. Oh, it's not a farm. Okay, so I thought that was something like restaurant no, supply. No, this, the, the, this is mo- right. this is mostly this is mostly like deer breeders sending around animals for like captive herds. Uh, the high fence. Yeah, that will be yeah. used in a sort of quasi make believe hunting scenario, and they just keep grinding it, and grinding it, and people keep relying on the industry to self police. But and they're overseen by the Department of Agriculture, not not, not, not fish and game. So yeah, you know. and and most people who are most people who are watching this give the USDA a pretty uh, a, a failing grade on their willingness and ability to get out ahead of this and stop having these like captive deer breeders corrupt wild herds that Joe Blow America hunts for from getting an infectious disease from captive deer. Right. I got to think it would be handled differently if it was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, is it, are, the, are the captive deer uh, of native origin, are they whitetail or are they axis No, deer? they're whitetails. They are. Yeah. So you'd think there would be some jurisdictional responsibility of the state overseeing those. There's Yeah, there's been efforts on that behalf. Some states you can do it, some states you can't, but they... The, the captive deer breeders are those herds fall under like an ag. Huh. Those herds fall under like an agricultural administration and are regulated through an agricultural industry rather than through wildlife. Even though these are like, these are a native wildlife species that give an infectious disease to wild animals it's still on a on an interstate federal level. They oversaw USDA, not the not wildlife organizations. It's a mess, man. Uh, oh, we we had to think come in. We're talking about Osage Orange because we're doing this. We talk about this call we're doing with with Phelps uh, game calls where we cut down a black walnut in an Osage Orange. We're going to make about a thousand turkey calls out of that walnut tree and about a thousand strikers out of the Osage orange. And we're talking about how that tree has so many damn names. Um, we're talking about burdock or like some people call it burdock, but it's a, he was saying bodark is a term for Osage orange. And it comes from the French, like bodark. You know this word? Anyone? When you see Osage orange, bodark, it's like, uh, Bow, you know, it, it basically it's like bow wood. That you'd make bows from bow dark. And it, it, it's, it's a derivation of that French word. Did we pronounce that properly? Bow dark? No, I don't know. But bow, but it, like the derivation is bow dark. So when you hear, like, we were talking about how people would call it, I don't, I don't know, bow dark or burdock or whatever the hell. Um, this guy was just writing in, like, what you're, what you're trying to say, what you're getting at. Is it's a you're, you're sort of butchering a French word, bow. It's like bow b o i s d hyphen a r c. That'd be bois. Here, look this up. Look, tell me what. Look this up. I've seen it spelled that way, because uh, here it is. Didn't didn't Boone when Boone moved to Missouri? Didn't he live right now on like the Bodark River? Bois dark, a common name. 
is French for Bowood. Told you. <laughs> That's what I said, right? Mm-hmm. Bois d'Arc. You nailed it. Wood <laughs> of the Ark. Oh, wood oh, of the arc. bow. Yeah, not, not arc like, like a bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the flight of an arrow. That's good, man. These turkey calls are getting cooler by the minute. <laughs> All right, Brody. Uh, Brody's get, Brody, do the book report for us about the, uh, the what's going on. The latest, uh, the latest twist and turn on um, on what America loves to call Yellowstone's wolves. Yeah, what uh, I like to call it, Wyoming's and Montana's wolves. Yep, I'm going to talk about them, but you can't talk about them without talking about what's going on in a couple other states too. But anyway, uh, late September, uh, northern border of Yellowstone Park, so just uh, south of here, a little ways. Three wolves from uh, Montana's, from Yellowstone's Junction Butte Pack got killed on private land, um, which hit the news. It was two female pups and one female yearling. Um, so, you know, people were kind of up in arms when the news hit about it that some of Yellowstone's wolves got killed because the Junction Butte Pack is uh, the most viewed wolf pack in the world. And they only spend about 5%. What's the number two? Probably the other the other <laughs> ones in the park, um, but they they uh, den right next to like a, a major road, so they're like seen all the time. Oh yeah, if you ever drive through the park and all those people standing up and around uh, Lamar Valley, standing around there, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What that's what they're trying to get a gander at. So, uh, but you know, wolves don't know there's a border there, some line drawn on a map. So they, they spend about 5% of their time outside the park, usually in late fall. And uh, until recently, that part of Montana, uh, the, the, the State Fish and Game Agency limited the number of wolves that were taken from that area adjacent to the park's northern boundary. But they recently changed the regs, loosened them up, um, and lifted restrictions on the number of wolves that can be taken there. And uh, part of those loosening of restriction, changing of regulations was authorizing baiting from private property. But you know what? You can bait. I just had this big argument yep. yesterday because I thought I had a, I thought I came up with like a secret idea. You can, you can bait on public. You can bait wolves on public. You can't night hunt or use thermal vision to hunt wolves after dark on public. It's in the regs, man. Oh, I, I'm not doubting you. Yeah. But I, I'm just... I ran around. I read this thing that you're talking about. Yeah. And I ran around. First off, this, 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 I had a genius idea occur to me. And it wound up not being that genius. Because I thought it was like only private land baiting. Yeah. Which you mean, basically, you take a, you find a deer that got hit on the side of the road. Yep. And drag it out. And wait. Into a good spot and then sit there. Yeah. Uh, and when I thought it was private only, a light bulb went off in my head. But then... Uh, Garrett Long pointed out in the actual reg, you can bait public or private. You cannot night hunt on public. Gotcha. And um, now you can snare. I think probably the reason the private property thing came up is uh, about a third of that northern boundary of Yellowstone borders private property. And these wolves were shot on private property. I'm assuming they were baited across the border. Were they maybe were they chasing livestock? You know, no, they no. were shot by hunters. Oh, okay, it was right. you know the wolf season had opened and they were shot by hunters. Um, as as angry as some people got about this, it was all completely legal, right? Nothing, mm-hmm. 
no laws were violated. Um, and I think what a lot of people forget is, you know, there's 27 wolves in that pack. Yeah, there's only 24 now. But if they're managed as a renewable resource, those those three are going to get replaced, even though, you know, some people think it's the end of the world for yeah, the wolves. Yeah, you know what the number one cause of death is for wolves? wolves. The number one <laughs> cause of death is that a wolf gets killed by yeah. a wolf. Yeah. Yeah, how much, I forget what um, she said now. Her name's uh, Diane. Diane Boyd, right? Yeah. Uh, how much, what percentage of the population dies off every year? Was it 25 or I don't almost remember. Like 50%? It was very high. It was a yeah. lot. So, like, if there was 100 wolves in the Yellowstone greater ecosystem, it would go down to something like 50. And then the next year. And then the next year be back up to 100. Yeah. yeah. It does that every single year. And, and I think if th- this hadn't been wolves from that junction butte pack they're just wolves from the middle of montana somewhere you know yeah this would have never made the news but the media is pretty focused on montana and idaho's war on wolves these days yeah and then there's the the reporting problem that happens in the news all the time that i think is they're always using like no matter where it happens it's always yellowstone's wolves so there was a story where our governor um killed a wolf yep and I look at the headline, and it's like, Montana's governor kills Yellowstone wolf. I was like, that's so weird that our governor would go into Yellowstone <laughs> and kill wolf. But then, lo and behold, it's not. Yeah. It was in Montana. There's no fence on private Yellowstone. property. He didn't kill one of Yellowstones. You could say he killed the wolf, yeah. Montana wolf. Yeah. But they, they, this is why, this is, this is partly fueling my thing where part of my life goal um, is to get. Yellowstone turned into a desert to a wilderness area. Yeah. Like rip out all the infrastructure, leave the highways in place. It becomes a wilderness area that'll give it enhanced protection, no motorized use. It's more protected. And then wildlife management goes to Montana and Wyoming. That would be fantastic. And you can, you can have a, a raffle for the Yellowstone super tag. Go get them all. Like 10 super tags. Yep. yep. And it's like more protected more pristine, less human involvement, restore human predators to the landscape. It's like better for everybody. It'll never happen, Steve. You're going to have to figure out a way to replace those tourist dollars that are going to be cut out. Super tag lottery. Think that'll do it? <laughs> so uh, I got I to think on it. Over in Idaho, uh, the Department of Fish and Game entered into an agreement with a nonprofit hunting group to reimburse hunters for the expense of a proven wolf kill. Home at what now? Well, <laughs> they're calling it a reimbursement program. Oh, okay. I'm reading that as a bounty on wolves, which, you know, whatever. Um, the Foundation for Wildlife Management is a hunting group that describes its mission as protecting deer and elk. So they coughed up. 200 grand to reimburse hunters for uh, the expenses they incur while killing wolves. Huh. Um, 2,000. Do you got to turn in receipts? I'm assuming you got to bring a dead wolf, but I don't know. Hmm. But they have like, here you go. 2,000 per wolf in hunting units where Fish and Game says predators are keeping elk below objectives. 1,000 per wolf in the northern tip of the state and 500 elsewhere. So... This is getting attention because last was it la- it wasn't even last year when it was like Idaho's killing ninety percent of their wolves. Yeah, which, um, is which wasn't you know even, even close sort of, to the whole whole yeah. story. Um, 
So there's a lot of people that are irritated about this uh, this bounty system they got going on. They're not calling it a, a bounty. No, it's like an expense reimbursement program. Huh. huh. <laughs> I don't think they, like, that's got to be intentional that they're not so calling So they've it got a 200 grand. They're going to dish it out in $2,000 increments. 2000 1000 or 500 depending on the oh, situation. Oh, what unit you're in. Yeah, where it is. Wow. And, but, uh, you know, like, bounties don't usually work well for, like, coyotes and smaller predators. But I could see that that kind of money motivating some wolf hunters. That's really interesting. I could see why people would be a little... That's like a hard one on optics, man. Yeah, yeah. That's a hard one to manage yeah. right there. Well, yeah. once you put a dollar sign out there... Then you have some motivation for an unethical behavior. Yeah, that's right. You know? I can see it triggering that. Yeah, yeah. Because you see guys who mess with coyote bounties by like bringing them from other areas, other states. <clears throat> you know, whatever. Huh. Yeah. I get. I get what they're getting at. It's just I got. I got to think about it. I got to sleep on that one. Yeah. yeah. I knew that. That was. I knew that. That. I knew that. Heard of that happening. I can't remember if I heard it in, in in the Idaho Panhandle or something, or maybe Diane Boyd was talking about that program. That's a tricky one. Yeah, I get it, but I I just I'm trying to think about how to how to market that one, how to yeah how to sell that one. So then finally, over in Wisconsin, I'm sure everyone remembers last year they had their first wolf hunt in a while. The quota was 119 wolves, and they exceeded that by about 100 wolves in a, a couple of days. I think it was. It was very quickly, and the and the hunt got shut down. Um, this year. There's a citizen panel that recommends uh, quotas for game animals, and uh, that citizen panel recommended 300 wolves this year. The DNR didn't listen to them and went with 130, um, which you got to assume they're thinking they had to react to what happened last year and avoid Mm -hmm. overharvest. And something I learned that, that I did not know is half of those tags go to the Ojibwe tribe, and which and the, and they have historically chosen not to use those tags. Yeah. So essentially, there's going to be 65 tags available to hunters this year. You know that 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 resource split is something you see around the country on different wildlife mm-hmm. issues. Like when I was uh, living in Washington, we would do a lot of clam digging, and they would have uh, uh, on some of those beaches on the Olympic Peninsula, there'd be a there'd be a biological assessment that was done in tandem between the tribes and the state. And they would do like, let's say they're looking at razor clams. They would agree on a a razor clam abundance, right? Then they'd agree on like what total harvest should look like. And then they, whatever that total harvest should look like for the year, they just split it 50, 50. Yeah. So 50, 50 went to, to the tribes and the tribes could conduct their own thing, do commercial digs, whatever. They had their end of it. And then the state would deal with their half. However, they dealt with their half through, you know, yeah. recreational clam digging. So, like, that that concept of doing a, a, re, a, a, a tribal state resource split, but it does get a little skewed when it's going to go unused. But if it goes unused, then you imagine that next year's recommended right. the, the next year's recommended harvest might be higher. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, the Ojibwe are currently suing the federal or their. Let's see, yeah, federal lawsuit to cancel the wolf hunt altogether, arguing it violates their treaty rights. Um, 
They don't harvest wolves because they view them as family, but they also believe that Wisconsin failed to use sound biological principles in the past, you know, when setting these quotas. Yeah. We'll see where that goes. It's a tricky one all around, man, because the minute you start talking about how you believe in wolf harvest, people think you're anti-wolf. I'm like anything but anti-wolf. Right. Like, I I don't think, I don't like us, uh, just me speaking personally, I don't think that humans are really in a position to decide that certain wildlife species should be like eliminated from the earth. That's like a level, you know, we have, I think, a moral, ethical responsibility to keep native wildlife on the ground. Sure. But I also think that they should be managed and hunted for. Yep. I agree. And, and, and like, if, 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 if the last decade or longer has taught us anything, it's that you can absolutely have wolf hunting and wolves. Because we've had wolf hunting now for years, and we got more wolves than we had when we started. So You have a wolf hunt plan, don't you? No. You don't? Oh, just messing around? Yeah. No, I got, well, I got a couple irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I got me them new them new snowmobiles are burn uh, burning a hole in my pocket. Ooh, yeah, it'll yeah. be good for that. Um, no, we got a couple. Yeah, I, mean, I got I got to make a couple phone calls to the people. I've been very interested in uh, in, in predator calling for them, mm. which is a little bit tricky. There's these. Well, I don't want to say what these boys are doing because I haven't like tested it myself yet. There's an emerging strategy I've been catching wind of. Oh. This is unrelated to when I thought I had that little breakthrough with roadkill deer, but haven't done that. Uh, all right, so continuing on with um, continuing on with the, with a thing we've been exploring lately, which is fisherman harassment. Which how, like, how is that even a thing? But like hunter harassment, I get you know, like whatever you're out duck hunting, and some person comes out freaking out on you. But fisherman harassment is we, we've got a lot of stories from listeners about being out fishing and having dock owners come out and, and try to scare the fish away from their dock area. Or scare like the fishermen thing. off. Or scare fishermen, yeah. Harass, shoot garden hoses at fishermen. Whatever you can do to like ruin their fishing, which is illegal. But this one came in from Macosta County, and uh, that, that holds a special place in my heart because uh, I grew up south of there, and I used to, uh, I used to trap in Muskegon County, Nuego County, but then for a bunch of years in December, late December, January, we would trap up in Macosta County. So we'd go up to Macosta County and trap through the ice for uh, beaver and muskrats. Now it's kind of like the highlight of the trap in here. I used to love hanging out up there. Um, anyways, these guys wrote in that they've had this, uh, a lot of encounters with an anti-angler. What's the world coming to? Anyways, the anti-angler... <laughs> He would uh, used to go down, and if you tried to fish his dock, so if you're going along and you're pitching jigs under his dock, this dude would run out and yell at you. But recently, this guy was out doing yard work, and he had one of those uh, backpack leaf blowers, like a like a leaf blower strapped to his back. And as they're coming by trolling, he runs down to his dock and starts leaf blowing the water, blowing the water every which way in an effort to spook off fish. Um, so this is interesting. We have two, uh, two law enforcement former, I should, I should, you guys are law enforcement who can speak freely because you're former. Correct. Yeah. Right. yeah. So Retired. now you can tell people what you really think. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Paul was a former regular law policeman. 
Sheriff's deputy. Sheriff's There's deputy. That's not a regular policeman? Uh, I mean, not a game warden. Not a game warden, correct. Yeah. Sheriff's deputy. Yep. And Sam was an Arizona game warden. Correct. So uh, I want to ask each of you guys. You get a call from an angler who says, I'm out fishing right now, and I'm coming by a dock, and there's a man blowing his leaf blower around in the water to scare fish away. Um, do you, like, turn the sirens on and race over? Like, what would be your attitude? Yeah, certainly no sirens. Um, <laughs> uh, my my first uh, thought would be to call the game warden because it's obviously uh, wildlife related. Oh, that's uh, what you do? Yeah, because in Montana, at least, you know, we've got a whole set of rules that fit under game laws. I see. If they weren't available, uh, it would be just under normal laws would be disorderly conduct, which everybody calls disturbing the peace and kind of the catch all. Or you might, you might get a disturbing the peace type situation going on. Potentially. Yeah. Um, that would be the, that'd be where it would fall under in in Montana law. Mm -hmm. If it, if the game warden wasn't there to write the wildlife ticket. Yeah, and that was uh, often the case where the local sheriffs or police department would get a hold of us when it was a, a wildlife-related thing and, and vice versa. When we got into drugs and right. drunk drivers, we got a hold of you guys because I didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that hits me is, you know, is there any way I could de-escalate that thing? Sometimes these people out trying to harass whether you're a hunter or an angler want the publicity out of it. And uh, make a big issue out of it. Oh. And uh, in fact, we had. Uh, oh, and you're saying the harasser wants, wants broader attention, attention. Wants the attention. And the next thing you know, next weekend, there's three people out with leaf blowers. Um, <laughs> you know, they start a movement? Yeah. It's a leaf, leaf blowing program. But yeah, I would, uh, if, if I receive that call, there's nothing on the books from a game and fish at that point uh, dealing with harassing anglers. Uh, it was li- literally hunters and hunter yeah. harassment, um, which which we did find many, many times where they just sought publicity. They just wanted mm. officers to show up and and make their case, and it was on the news. And so you de-escalate it. So I, that's what I would have certainly done in this case. What does that, like, walk me through it. What does that wind up looking like? <laughs> well, I'd probably get a hold of <laughs> Corinne. How many geese did you shoot? <laughs> I, uh... And so if I got a call, obviously there was a, 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 a person that called the, the dispatch and I would get in touch with them and see if I could meet them and go, all right, here's this guy. He doesn't want you near his You'd place. want to meet with the fisherman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's this whole lake here. This guy obviously doesn't want you out here. The more you make an issue out of this, the more likely he's probably going to get some buddies doing it too. Just back out of there. Really? Yeah. And then I'd probably go talk to the guy, the yeah. leaf blower. Okay. Okay. And just say, come on here. Let's try to reach some kind of a balance. Why are you doing this? Well, every time I go down there and try to read my book, here's some guy. And one time he almost hooked me in the ear. <laughs> okay. I can understand that, you know. And, and uh, But let's think of some other options, you know. This guy had a kid with him. He wanted to introduce him to fishing. And now his whole day was ruined. But it's, it's talk it out. Yeah. Yeah. No oh. tickets. Yeah. Like I'd agree with that a hundred percent. A therapy <laughs> session. <laughs> yeah, that's what you go. You feel better already. <laughs> that, and reading Sam. So, uh, we're going to talk some more about Sam's book. We have, Sam's book is, uh, stories of the past in Arizona game range of remembering the outlaws. And, uh, the thing that struck me most in the book is 
You aren't, um, you don't wake up in the morning wanting to bust someone's balls. Only a few people. <laughs> that was generally like a generally lenient. Yeah. Not, not, no, lenient's not the right word. Um, like you, uh, you didn't, you don't, you don't seem to have real axe to grind. Well, you know, it's like, I think I told Corinne, you know, these people that, uh, well, well, let's just say this for those of us that are actively in, uh, involved with hunting and angling, uh, I mean, almost avid and that means greedy. Mm-hmm. If you haven't violated a game and fish regulation, I'd be surprised. Yeah. And so mistakes happen all the time. And you look at 90% of the people out there, 99% of them are, are good, you know, conservationists, enjoying recreation and passing on a tradition and accidents happen. Certainly you recognize those kinds of cases and, and walk into it gently, but the real bad guys, you darn right. I stayed awake at night. I wanted those guys and mm-hmm. I was going to put them out of business. Uh, some of those stories are in there. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, 
It was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Can I get, squeeze in a follow-up siren question? Oh, yeah. How, how, how civilians use it to mean the um, lights? Uh, no, no, go ahead. No, different. <laughs> so everybody's seen it, I think, when you're driving along and all of a sudden, like, uh, some sort of law enforcement officer is next to you, and the lights come on, and they buzz down whatever X road or highway for seemingly a shorter distance, <laughs> and then the lights go off, and then you just continue about. Yeah, their that day. happens. That happens all the time. Okay, I'll tell. I'll tell you what I think's going on. Okay, please. I think that they got an emergency call, and then someone called and said, "Never mind." Okay. That's that's A. I don't think that's where Yanni's going. B is like, I got to get home real quick because I got to go number two. C is I got another errand to run. Or And D is I have this power. I'm just going to like use it just a little bit. Why do you do that? I'd say sometimes all of the above could be true. That's a diplomatic answer. I've seen guys... You know, after leaving, uh, I don't know, the taco joint, you're like, I need to get back to the office right now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and use the old lights and sirens. Yeah. I mean, that's usually a night shift thing, but, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, while yeah, I'm more, at it, I'm going to scare the shit out right. of some people. More often than not, it's something that is like an emergent call, but not necessarily worth risking anything for and you just catch a red light and you're like man i'm gonna sit here for five minutes or i'm gonna get through this one and, and keep rolling oh um that's probably the most common yep instead um, of causing all the chaos of going down the street yeah because I mean, you know how hard it is to drive even through bozeman much less a big city um in rush hour traffic and you just sit there for hours and so sometimes a call comes up that you're like man i just you know, I could be there in, ha- in well, in Gallatin County and be there in 10 minutes or I'm going to not be three blocks yet in 10 minutes. So you get through it just to kind of get through the, the cluster yeah. and then move on. We should do a whole, we should do a show, like a weekly show called Ask a Cop. <laughs> yeah. And get a whole panel of cops and you ask them like, why do you guys always, you know? <laughs> I know a couple. <laughs> Did you ever get involved with any uh, Montana stream access, like access law? Disputes. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, because uh, I'm obviously worked in this area. I have to be careful who I talk about. But the, uh, um, you know, there's several landowners. I'm uh, reading between the lines on that ne- one. Nearby That's here, <laughs> um, nearby. You know, and Bozeman being a big fishing community has got 
you know, just loads of people parked all the way down around all the bridges. And we have guys who have, you know, cameras out, uh, ready to, you know, if you take one step above high watermark there, they have motion activated cameras and alarms on their phones and they're calling and they want everybody sighted. And it's typically, uh, I'm sure, uh, Sam can, can, uh, relate. And then it's typically spurred on by somebody and, you know, some fishermen with bad behavior causing them to get a burr under their saddle about it. But we've had cases, uh, where, you know, bridges, there's not really great parking areas and we suspect the landowners who typically would call every day with, with fishing or, you know, access issues, those are the bridges we would show up and there'd be, you know, a crate of nails spread around in the ditch. So everybody who parked ended up with flat tires and limited the numbers of people who would go out there and try and park in the ditch. Um, wow. But yeah, we dealt with it fairly often. And then you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I had a guy who, he's a young college kid. He was trying to do the right thing. There was a bank in the river that he couldn't stay in without swimming. And he was outside of the bank. Now, maybe it was just a couple feet. He had to, he had to go around a, a rock to get around and he came, you know, the guy had the motion activated alarm on his phone, had the recording by the time I got there and everything on camera and said, I don't care. He was trespassing. I want him cited. And he's dealt with it enough that he just, he, he has it signed very well. Uh, the guy, you know, if he'd have known the law, I'm sure probably would have avoided that whole side of the river. But so you had to write that dude a ticket. Yeah. I uh, written a few tickets that I've almost felt like I needed to apologize for. Yeah. So. Yeah. He's going to wear that kid's going to wear that river bank out. Yep. Won't be no good for nothing anymore after he comes walking through. Right. That. Uh, Oh, a guy wrote in, here's another, like, this is a access question. So he's talking about legally accessing landlocked public land. This is, this is a good topic of discussion. Um, Landlocked public land is like where you have state or federal land and it's surrounded on all sides by private land and there's no public access road cutting through it, which makes it sort of like de facto private land. Um, more and more people are using helicopters to access that stuff if the land management agency that holds the land allows you to land a helicopter on it. But this guy's wondering, um, why can't you parachute onto the land? I see. Of course you can. Extraction, just throw a military term at it, becomes an issue. But you remember that John Wayne movie, Green Braves, when they caught that like high-profile target in green, and they hooked that dude to those balloons, and that plane came by and hits the string and pulls the guy into the back of the plane? Yeah. You got to get been, a rig up a, like that. It's been a long time. Uh, yeah, so you could parachute in. I don't know how you're going to get out of there. Yeah, I think you uh, got to hire that helicopter. Yeah, short haul your way out of there with a long line if you can't land. Yeah, or if you're just moving there, I guess you could parachute in. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, and what's the what's the intent of what are you after? Are you hunting or fishing? Uh, he does. I'm assuming he's talking about hunting. He wants to go hunt it. So, uh, yeah, I guess get after it, and then have a pickup. Yep. You know, I I think I'm going to get into this a little bit. This parachuting on the places i just gotta figure out how to get out 
That's a good idea. It's a great question. But yeah, I don't see any, it would, because a lot of the stuff you can't, because you cannot land the aircraft on it, but there's no thing with you just landing there in your boots, but you still got to get picked up. Can you jump out of a helicopter? You know, that, that's another good question. I'm, I'm guessing there's some, like if, if you're, if you go on to, let's say you're going on to a part, a, a land agency that says no landing helicopters. I wonder how they view, I'm sure we can get a concrete answer to this, what what the airspace implication yeah, is. Yeah. Because you, you're not going to be like cute and have it be that the helicopter never touched and you just hopped off. I'm guessing that they're going to, there's a point at which they're going to not really care about how clever you are. That It's like, it didn't actually touch. Yeah, I did that once and I forgot to take my helmet off with the mic. Oh, yeah. Jumping off the skid. And right at the end, I remembered I still had that helmet. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been stupid. Um, yeah, that's a great question, man. It's good. It's interesting to think about. And uh, yeah, I don't know. How, I don't know. I don't know how it would go. Like just the jumping out of a helicopter. I'm guessing that you have to stay. That that thing has to stay a certain distance above. What is it? In, like parks have it, right? Like national parks. You can fly <clears throat> well, a helicopter yeah. over a park, but you have to. There's a ceiling. And like you can't go and sh- even shoot video or. Uh, you know, whatever commercial pictures uh, in the wilderness out of a helicopter. You cannot. Mm-mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? I just remember that because a guy, gosh, I, I think it was this guy named Chris Davenport, a skier that skied all of Colorado's 14ers. Uh-huh. And he had a bunch of uh, images and I think video that was. Or he had maybe even done some accessing through helicopter. I can't remember exactly what, but I know that they shut him down for the helicopters use stuff. Got it. We had an interesting thing come in too. Uh, last note: a guy was uh, a guy named Gilbert. That's probably the first dude named Gilbert to ever write us. I think so. A guy named Gilbert wrote in. He's hunting in Illinois this weekend and discovered an interesting regulation. This is a quote. Roadkill deer may only be claimed by those individuals who are residents of Illinois and are not delinquent in child support payments. Very specific. I think, Sam, you'll, you'll be able to speak to this, but isn't it true that in a lot of states, you can't hunt and fish and have a hunting license and fishing license if you're delinquent, right? I believe so. I think yeah. it's getting more and more, probably. When yeah. we used to sell fishing licenses yeah, at the fly that. shop, there's a question on yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Are you delinquent? You have to be a citizen of Illinois. So the driver, a driver hits a deer. The driver says, I don't want the deer. The next guy in line can't be from Wisconsin. He's got to be from Illinois, and he's got to be up on his child support. Good. He can be like, well, I murdered some people, but I'm cool on child support. And be like, well, go ahead. Or at least he's getting it processed and delivering it to his child. Yeah. Maybe he's like, no, 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 you don't get it, man. I'm giving the deer to my exactly, kid. <laughs> exactly. Cut me a break here. All right, bump it down. Now we're going to talk more about Paul Lewis. Paul Lewis, you're cool with me dropping that motor off, right? Yeah, yeah. Have at it. We got a showroom. You can uh, fill up as much as you want. Just put stuff in there and leave it there? Yeah. It's like a big storage unit for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you. so here's the thing I wanted to, one of the things I want to talk about. So Paul's the founder of FHF. So when you see us on the show running around with um, a, a bino harness, mm-hmm. that's an FHF bino harness. 
I first, I don't, I don't know if I ever even told you the story. I first, my late friend, Eric Kern, who died years ago now, I remember he was the first person that made me aware of your products a long time ago. Yeah. And yeah, back then I was doing basically all custom stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I don't remember... I got asked the question before how, how that uh, first interaction happened. I don't like, I remember getting an email from Joe Rogan who was introduced to it through you guys, but I don't, I think I got a random phone call from a, which I don't answer a lot of phone calls. I don't know the number for, and it was a Bozeman number. So I answered it and you know, for me, it's like, Hey, it's Steven Ronella. I'm like, Oh really? You're bullshitting me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's how it was, or it was a, it might've been an email and, and yeah. So we, gosh, I made you a couple of custom ones early on yep. and, and, uh, cause you were stitching vinyl harnesses that just on your free time as a, as a cop. Yeah. I, yeah. It was side gig trying to make a little extra money and, uh, yeah, started doing custom work. Uh, like I said, kind of a hobby and, and, and just to pay the bills and, and kind of caught on being in Bozeman. I was doing a lot of tactical gear initially, you know, for SWAT team buddies. And then, you know, had kind of involved in some online forums, you know, that we're doing tactical gear stuff and, but being in Bozeman, all my hunting buddies, and then there's a couple outdoor jobs in Bozeman. So there's a few people that hunt around here and that is sort of what took off. Were you, when you were out doing, uh, all your, uh, police duties, were you ever wearing, your own accessories that you made for yourself? Not on patrol, but originally when I first started, actually, that's, that's actually how I started is I was too cheap to buy something because I was on our SWAT team as well. And, you know, we have a, a part-time team and I was too cheap to buy something and figured I could make it. So, um, and that led to making stuff for teammates. And I, there's one guy at work, his nickname for me was either zippers or pockets or something. Cause I always had... <laughs> If I needed a something to put something in a pocket, I'd make a pouch for it. Did you always have a sewing machine kicking around? I was gonna ask the same question. <laughs> no, I, I, I took seventh grade home ec. And, uh, me too. I made a fanny pack. Yeah, I did too. And uh, th- those were cool in the eighties or nineties, right? Yeah, I skateboarded all around Kalamazoo, Michigan, wearing <laughs> that thing. And uh, yeah, I. Uh, I had been able. I had just enough skill. I felt like to you know repair something if I had to. And, uh, my wife had a sewing machine. And so I figured I could make this thing that I was too cheap to buy. And that just led me to buying more materials and more machinery and more of everything. And it just kind of, I feel like you got to be a real confident in your masculinity when you, yeah, it helps that I sew camouflage things rather than lacy doily things. Oh, because uh, you, you still feel like a, you still feel manly, right? Yeah, yeah that's a good yeah. point. Try to, and it's but, like ballistic nylon, right? But it's right. like yeah. Kurt, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, and you both, you know, very manly individuals. But there's like there's a point where I think a lot of people are like, like a little, yeah, I'm not messing with the sewing machine. It's just too too dainty. Yeah, yeah. my wife has one. I don't want to be a seamstress. I, yeah, and we got you know I got that from guys I worked with. Like oh you oh you know giving me that snicker and mm-hmm. sewing again but you know <laughs> when i made that more money really occurred to me if i would i wish i could had a sewing machine and knew how right. to use it man i'd be sewing all kinds of junk yeah 
Well, mm-hmm. the tune changed, you know, you start making more money on your side sure. job than your main job, then they're mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, maybe it is worth doing. So you, uh, how did it be that you went to school for wildlife management way back in the day? Well, it's, I had, I was going to be a game biologist and- Well, you want to be a biologist. Yeah, yeah. that's where yeah. I was aiming. And then, yeah, my junior year in, in college, after spending all this time and money on classes, they came in and said- you will never get a job as a biologist, so find something else. Like you specifically, no. or at the time, it <laughs> no. just wasn't the it, right time? It was a, no, it was a, uh, a big full-on cl- classroom. They came in and said, you know, here's all of your chances of getting a job as a biologist. Even mm-hmm. with a PhD, it was slim to none. And I had been doing some internship work um, with, like, student security and, and MSU, like a dispatch for MSU PD just because it was usually pretty slow and I get a lot of studying done at night. And, but I got to know those guys had some interest in enforcement. And then, um, when I realized that being a biologist was going to be a lot of work and, you know, I had this plan to be able to travel around and be a, a tech and take side, you know, short, short term jobs all over the country and do studies and realized that probably wasn't going to work as a, an adult trying to be, trying to, you know, be responsible. So, uh, one of the game wardens came in and gave a talk in the same class and said, you know, we're hiring and, you know, we give you a truck and a four wheeler and horses and, you know, you can be outside all day and, and you don't need more than a bachelor's degree in a related field. And I was like, I think that's probably what I might look at. So, so I started aiming for that direction, but, um, you know, did internships with the wardens here, oh, worked, you did, worked yeah. in the wildlife lab, did, you know, that's I, right when I graduated college, I ended up taking a job as a security officer up on the flying D and thinking that was as close as I could get <laughs> to uh, job experience. And, um, when I graduated, they did a hiring freeze here and weren't hiring any wardens. So. I took the written test, which happened to be, I was on search and rescue, a volunteer for search and rescue with the sheriff's office, and they were hiring. They take the same written test, the police, standard police test, and I applied really just kind of to see how I would do on the test, and they ended up hiring me, and I realized they, at the time at least, paid better than the state. They, I got to stay in Bozeman instead of getting shipped to who knows where in Montana, yeah. and it's a lot easier to get time off during hunting season when you're not a game warden. So that's, uh, that's what I did. How many years did you spend on that? Uh, with the sheriff's office? Yeah. I did my full 20, retired with 20 year yeah. retirement. I got a friend, I don't, I don't want to say what town he's in, but I got a friend who grew up in a town um, and did all their bunch of professional things around construction. And then I guess probably late in life for police work, but late in life, went to academy and became a city policeman mm-hmm. in his hometown. And it radically transformed his idea of the town that he lived in, where he said he had no idea. Yeah. And he I had think no idea. That's true here. I didn't grow up here. I mean, I went to college here, but I think for the most part, people are, you know, Bozeman's a nice place to live, but, you know, we as law enforcement in the area certainly stay busy and there's a lot more going on here than people realize. Yeah, he was astounded by the child abuse, the spouse abuse, 
Yeah. It's like, how do you live your whole life somewhere and have like an impression of it? And then you get a look under the, you know, well, and, and, and you get a look under the covers and he's like, it just mortified him. It changes your outlook. You know, I worked six years straight a night shift and you aren't dealing with your general population at three in the morning. Um, you're, you just, you're seeing people at their worst, you know, even if they're good people, they aren't, you know, it's not normal to be having one-on-one dealings with the police at three in the morning. And so your outlook on life sort of changes. And that's when I started this side gig, it was one of those things that really helped me kind of realize, you know, because I I was hesitant to meet people, customers having gear built, you know, I'm like, I'll meet you in a parking lot somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where I live. You're just paranoid. Yeah. I, I, my only friends were other cops and you know, uh, night shift cops. Cause you know, we had our barbecues at seven in the morning instead of normal times. <laughs> and, uh, um, it, uh, it, ha- having this side gig come up really kind of helped me realize that there were still decent people in the world and yeah, especially yeah. hunters and anglers as a general rule is kind of much better people than I was used to dealing with. When you, when you started building FHF, did you, uh, did you get like a guilty conscience that you had a, that you weren't like hundred, you know, I guess you still are cause you're still doing your shift, but I mean, did you feel bad? Like you were betraying your occupation or something? Um, in what way? What do you mean? Like, like that you had another love, right? Um, not really. I mean, I was able to kind of balance, you know, I, I, I mean, I ended up, I was in charge of our detective division and you know, that was my main job, but definitely all of my off time was spent as this, as FHF kind of grew, I never planned it to grow as quickly as it did. In fact, I tried to slow it down several times because I was so busy and I was, you know, doing everything myself. Um, but it just kind of took on a life of its own. And so, you know, by the end I was just trying to hang on to make my 20 years and, and, uh, you know, I'd say there are times where I probably gave a little more attention to the, to my side gig than I probably should have, but I tried really hard to not, not let it, uh, affect my day job. Yeah. Um, on the, like the gradual path to vinyl harnesses, we, like, like in the old days, just, we'd put like a pair of binoculars around our neck. Right. On a rigid strap. I remember getting, I, I wish I still had this thing. Maybe I do, but we started inexpertly sewing stuff. And I remember taking, um, taking a cutting a strip out of a pair of neoprene waders, old neoprene waders, and made my neck strap out of a neoprene wader stitch piece. Right, and then stitched strapping to that. Okay, that hooked to key rings that were in the tethers, like in the the fastening points on my binoculars. Right, and then we'd take a piece of a uh, bungee cord and fasten one end of the bungee cord to the binocular, to that key ring, run it around behind your back and to the other key ring, you'd have a piece of paracord in which you'd tie a prusik. Right. And tie the prusik around the bungee. You follow me? Yeah. So as you shed layers, you could like tighten the prusik up on the bungee. It was to have the bungee. So when you put your binoculars up, you'd have the resistance of the bungee for stability. And then when you're belly crawling, that bungee would suck them up to your chest. I like it. Yeah. We should uh, hire, <laughs> hire you as a designer. I, 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 
I don't remember exactly, but I don't think I invented this. I think this is just like looking at stuff and doing it. But I remember that dude, Eric Kern, being like, oh, no, man, there's this guy in Belgrade that yeah. like makes these whole things. You got to tell him what you got, you know, and he makes it all. And what's funny is at the time, like no one really knew about that stuff. And, and um, we get the vinyl harnesses. And I remember camera guys. So we, we had a lot of dealings with production people. Um, that no interest in hunting at all. I remember one of our camera, one of our longtime camera guys, I don't know how many episodes of Mo film, like, um, not 50, yeah, probably. maybe 50 him, him being like, they carry all their batteries and right media, everything in there, you know, and he'd, he'd run around being like, I can't believe my whole life. I wasted this real estate <laughs> and he'd even be going like, he'd be shooting Bourdain show. You know, they'd be whatever, like Singapore shooting Bourdain show. And those dudes would all have bi- your bino harnesses on with their, like, camera equipment and stuff in there, you know. They loved it, man. And they're all wearing the chest rig now, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. now they got, yeah, they don't have to stick it in the bino pocket now because yeah. now there's, like, an actual chest rig that's more accessorized. But that was his big thing is, like, this whole life he'd wasted this this <laughs> space <laughs> where who knows you could keep all your stuff here. Yeah. I, Paul, yeah. when you came up with, like, that bino harness design, what were you seeing that you didn't like, you know, in the other options that were out there? Um, well, it's funny because there weren't, oh, I have to admit, I hadn't actually researched vinyl like harnesses was, a You whole weren't life. making it based on what you didn't like about other shit. The, the first one was actually made for a custom order for somebody else um, and, you know, who had had a bunch of elk scared away by, um, he had a, one of those uh, early magnetic ones that, stayed open the wind caught it popped it shut and made a huge noise elk got scared away and he's like i want something without a magnet so that was the first first one i started making i made a few for you know a few other friends and customers went to uh actually one of randy newberg's um really early like get togethers and came away from there with a bunch of orders and and uh you know and i'd been wearing just the the old elastic crooked horn um, bungee yeah. lino strap, yeah. and you know, and I'd had my own issues with that. You know, you're hiking around and bouncing, hitting you in the waist, or you know, lower if you weren't lucky. Or the chin sometimes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I tried to jump over a stream one time, and you know, I, I jumped and ended up hitting the other bank. Binos went one way and came back and hit me right in the nose. Ended up <laughs> standing in the creek bleeding, and like, there's got to be a better way to do this, and. uh yeah, that's kind of how it started and just kind of evolved from there, you know, and it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, we just kind of added a few features here and there over the years. And, you know, now, to be honest, I got so busy as the company grew where I was running kind of day-to-day business stuff all the time and really had very little opportunity to update products or even design new ones. And now we're finally getting to a point where I feel like we're moving forward on all sorts of new stuff. What, when you started your, when you started your business while being a full-time police officer, what was the, how many years did you do it before you did it a year where you're like, had a profit, like realized that you had an actual business? Um, it wasn't until I actually started, we, we ended up, uh, working with a company to help sew gear for me. So mm-hmm. like certain things that I would have a list of, um, I don't know how many years it was into it, probably, probably two or three where, you know, I was just sewing everything myself and I, I'm one of those people who are like, that's yeah, not worth that. You know, give me five bucks for that. I'll, you know, it's probably not worth that much. And 
so I look at some of my early stuff. I can't believe people paid for it, but, um, <laughs> they, like when I found a company that helped me, like my most requested products, I just had made for me. And, um, that's when I started seeing a profit because I, it was just the time of actually sewing. I could just sell those things, um, one after the other, instead of spending, four, you know, one by an harness would take me four and a half hours to make oh, is that right? by really? myself, yeah. you know, and that's when I was sewing them all the time and felt good at it. And so, you know, at the time I was probably selling them for 60 bucks. It's hard to make a profit at that rate. Well, uh, when you were early on, were you tempted to not stick to having everything be American made? Um, just no. cause you could have gone and had like hundreds of them made and just have it all be like, no, I've pretty much always stuck to that, that I, I try and source everything I can, both materials and obviously labor, um, in the U S and, um, that's kind of been one of the things throughout the whole history that I've stuck to and kind of built a customer base around. And I think a lot of people appreciate that. Um, and it, early on, you know, I was, I didn't want to invest too much money into something and, you know, going overseas, you have to do huge orders and gotcha. wait a long time. And it's been nice, uh, with us production is that, you know, if I have a change, I can make that change and have a turnaround pretty quick versus a two year planning process to try and, you know, get something made overseas. Uh, you know, another thing I, I wanted to ask you, do you have a, how, how many, how long has it been since you retired? Uh, since 2018. Do you have a lot of days where you, uh, wish you hadn't done that and stayed in it? No. Um, a lot of the guys still there, I still see, and I, I recommend retirement to them every day. Dearly. I, especially in- <laughs> So you're like a, the opposite of a recruiting force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I miss the people. I miss the work. Um, sometimes, um, I miss being in the know what's going on in the Valley and in the news and- uh -huh. But I don't miss the stress and the politics and the the BS that you have to deal with every day. I mean, I don't, I haven't been shot at yet since I retired, so that's kind of nice. Yeah. Do you feel like whatever kind of um, I don't mean to like, I'm not trying to like lay a diagnosis on you or anything like that, but whatever sort of, I don't know, like PTSD is shit happens to you from being like the first on a car crash, scene. like yeah, you know, just like you, you right. Right. You're running into like, like dead people become a part of life. Yeah. In some way, like this inescapable part of life. Like most, if you went out and polled Americans, like, have you ever seen, have you like been in proximity to a dead person? I feel like at this point in human, in American history, a majority of people would have a no answer. Right. Outside of a funeral home. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, yeah. Like, like, you know, that you like encounter in close proximity, a dead individual, not, not in a funeral home. Like, I, I think that a vast majority of Americans would say, no, I have not. Right. Like it's just out of whatever it is, societally, we've gotten cleaned up. Like you talked to my dad when he was a little boy, it seemed like you couldn't turn around without there being a dead guy laying there. But like nowadays it doesn't happen. But yeah. then you're forced in that line of work. It's just like a thing. It has to have an impact. Yeah, I think it does. I, I actually read something once from a law professor who talked about, you know, you kind of, you get used to it or you never get used to it, but you get to see it so often. They talk about, uh, grains of sand where you, it's something that you don't realize it's irritating you, but it is irritating you. Every call you go to is yeah. one of those things. And I think many in law enforcement, any emergency service, they kind of, the, this analogy that was made by this law professor was, you know, we all learn to like build a pearl around those grains of sand mm -hmm. and polish them up. And, you know, a lot of that 
polish has dark humor in it and you know you just kind of you try and find what's funny and what you can laugh at later and vent your stress that way do you find that getting out of it you start uh drifting back to whatever you were pre i don't know if i'll ever get there really? I, uh, I still have that you get stained a little yeah bit. yeah i definitely you know i still can't go in and eat at a restaurant without sitting with my back to the wall somewhere. I was just Seriously? Uh, oh, yeah, I don't. don't what like is your it. concern? I don't know. Is some just, guy you cuffed and stuffed is going to come up? And... Yeah, and you just kind of, you learn to always be ready. And, you know, driving around a patrol car, you're, you're always thinking what could happen next? What if this happens? You know, you're kind of the what if scenarios all the time. And, um, you know, luckily 99% of the time, it's pretty boring. But that 1% of the time when it's not, if you're not ready for it, it's could be real trouble. And that's, you, know, you go out to eat and you're like, you know, what if somebody comes in to rob the place? What if somebody uh -huh. I know, you know, or arrested or whatever comes in and recognizes me or, you know, I don't know. I just don't want to be, yeah. be hit in the back of the head. I'd rather see what's coming. He Do is you, sitting what, in the back corner right now. Yeah, he's, yeah he's sitting in the back corner watching the... <laughs> what are the type of... Uh, well, let me rephrase this. Uh, it's from a night shift going back into obviously working with more of a day shift operation yeah. and any of the residual health pieces or that, how did that unwind, you know, from trying to change your, sort of your basic lifestyle? Um, I don't know. So I worked nights. I was, luckily I was a lot younger then. I can tell as I got older, things got harder, um, to stay awake all night. Um, I remember I went through a full year. I learned to tie flies on night shift and you know, cause you wouldn't, your days off, you'd stay awake. You couldn't sleep really. I, um, I didn't have kids yet. Uh, early on and my wife at the time worked night shift and so it just we were like the vampires of the neighborhood and so you'd stay on the you stay on the rhythm I just stay on my schedule and you know made it a lot easier on the work schedule to go back to to night shift and I'd tie flies and I remember that's when I finally decided you know I probably ought to get off a of night shift when I had so many flies done because I never fished. It was dark. <laughs> yeah, it was dark out. So I had so many flies tied up. I'm like, man, I'm never going to get to use these if I don't get off the ship. Um, and then I went through a long period where like I had a hard time yeah, having kids, you know, not, you know, I was used to hibernating for 12 hours during the daytime and, you know, blocking out the lights and turning the AC on and you know, just, I, I did great on nights, but then when I had kids, it was pretty tough to oh, yeah. transition, you know, and realize my life now revolved around their schedule and not, not my own. Uh, you know, that jumpiness you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that you, do, do you make your kids jumpy? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say whether I caused it or that's, uh, but do you um, sense that in them that they pick up because they they're they're like they they, I, they they pick up a lot, man. Yeah, I don't know. They uh, I got a teenage daughter who I'm is pretty oblivious to anything but her phone. So okay. I think uh, so she's not like a gunfighter. No, facing the door and stuff I don't all think the time. So, no. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever look back and wish you hadn't gone into that work? Um. Yeah. Uh, like what? Because primarily what? Like what is the main thing? I don't know. You know, it's. It's hard. It's like I'm torn because I, I enjoyed the work. I actually, when I got hired, I never planned to go into that, that line of work. And, and honestly, when I got hired, I was like, I'll try this for a few years and see what happens. Um, but I had fun. I think the people I worked with were genuinely, you know, some of the best people I've ever met. They always would have my back. They, um, you know, we come, 
came to rely on each other. So, you know, similar to I'm what I'm sure I wasn't in the military, but similar to, you know, we hired a lot of veterans and, and that same mindset came with them. And it was different in that, you know, I worked with, I'd say the same core group of people for 20 years doing the same thing. And you just get to know those people. And so I, I wouldn't give that up for anything, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure, like you said, I'm, there's some scars there, I'm sure that mm-hmm. will always be there, but you know, I guess that's who makes me, me. So, or what makes me, me. And I think, you know, it'd be nice to not have them, but at the same time they're there. And I think I've learned from a lot of things and I was very naive when I got hired and I feel like I, hopefully I'm not, not so anymore. Yeah. I'm guessing that's probably accurate. Well, I appreciate the service to the community. You know, that's what I really, and I don't know if you feel that yourself, but I think that's like a, something that I'm feel like I'm missing sometimes, you know, as kind of a, an adult in their prime. And I'm always thinking like, man, how could I do more Mm -hmm. just around, you know, to help out. But like, I know that way. I know that that weighs weighs on Giannis in a legitimate way, man. Well, and it does for me too. I want to get more involved with some of the conservation stuff now that I'm out, you know, I'm just used to being, um, you know, I try and help with cleanups and different things around the community, but yeah, there are times where I'm like, man, I wish I could get more involved when I was in law enforcement, you know, it, it was different, but it's funny you bring it up and kind of tie what Steve said earlier about getting in later. Like when I first got hired, I was 21 years old and, you know, oh, I, wasn't, really? I wasn't thinking about Just starting drinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Writing <laughs> MIPs to people that <laughs> I'm like, would have partied with a few weeks earlier. Um, he caught me on the wrong night. <laughs> yeah. Um, Last night I've been with you, but tonight um, I'm going to ticket you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, when, when you're young and yeah, you know, maybe not everybody's like this, but I didn't realize really what I was getting, getting into, or maybe what the, what effect I could have, you know, and of course then you get into that. And I think Sam talked about it at some point where you get into feeling like I can clean up this community. I can fix everything. And you oh. realize, you realize that that's not possible either. You go through a phase where you're, you know, nobody can clean up this community and screw it all. Um, and then as you get older and I, I saw it with older hires, you know, you mentioned somebody else getting into it later in life. You'd, I think those were some of the best hires we had because you had guys that already knew what was going on in the community, what they'd like to see changed. They had community connections. You know, I was a college kid, basically, you know, when I got hired, I, my connections were, you know, what bar are we going to go to? Um, you know, it just, it's a different outlook on life and being involved. And so, yeah, it was good when we hired and, you know, the sheriff's office here did a really good job of hiring and picking those people that wanted to be involved. So uh, it was, you know, by the end, you know, certainly I was at a place where that was one of the best parts of it, where you got to go talk to kids and, you know, help out at different places. You were out of the game when it happened a year ago, but when you saw stuff like, uh, when you read like, you know, defund the police and stuff mm-hmm. that, that hurt did that sting a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. definitely. I feel bad for the guys, you know, that are still working that have to put up with, you know, that what I hope is kind of the vocal minority of people that, you know, have that hatred, but, um, you know, not to say that there isn't room for improvements in certain places, but, um, you know, I have my whole, I go on for hours about that, but I won't, but they, uh, 
you know, there are certain things that could be done to help, I think, improve the outlook of the public and the police uh, working together. And I think defund the police is certainly a, the wrong message to send out there. I just read an article in the, in the Times the other day about uh, the radical reversal of that movement. And it, it looked, I think it was most particularly looking at like Dallas or Houston. I can't remember, but yeah, it was yeah. like that they had stripped overtime funding for a while. Then now they're back in with more overtime. People are like, Oh, I didn't really mean that. Yeah. It's, you know, and it, it's like a, a widespread sort of movement away from thinking that that's actually not the plan. Like yeah. that's not the path toward more peaceful neighborhoods. Right. And yeah, it's a, it's a tough Tough topic to cover. And, you know, obviously every area of the country is different. I was lucky. I worked in Bozeman, Montana. There's worse places to work. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I have a limited perspective from that, that end, but you know, it's still, you know, I've worked with a lot of guys who moved here from Bozeman or sorry, from big cities, you know, DC, Dallas, different places. And they moved to Bozeman to get away from the crime and the lifestyle and they wanted the, the Bozeman lifestyle and they realized, well, you guys don't have very many people. And so you're still dealing with almost the same number of calls every night, same number of, you know, deaths, you know, we don't have the homicide rate of Chicago or something, but, um, you know, we, we're small enough. We don't have the gang problems and different things. And, but we're still dealing with a lot of the same stressors and it's just fewer people to deal with calls and so your your ratios are still yeah 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 the um travesties per person yep yeah it's still there Mm -hmm. um what uh tell us about what's coming up at fhf at your at your at your now business um you're now not you're now not as traumatic business (laughs) yeah um although i i joke when people ask if we're staying busy i i say i don't get to take as many coffee breaks anymore so i think i'm busier (laughs) now um but the donuts just don't come like no, they, they used don't. to. Huh? No, um, <laughs> a whole nother story about where where your food comes from and not eating at restaurants in uniform and only uh, yeah. Sorry. Ooh, oh, um, right. yeah. Yes, you've usually arrested most of the cooks. Um, but but um, so starting in November, uh, we're going to launch a bunch of, uh, accessories to our chest rig kind of that, that launches, you know, limited items that were, uh, built to accessorize the chest rig and make it a little more versatile, more modular. Um, should start seeing that stuff trickling out. Yeah. Explain the chest rig. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, imagine a bino harness, but it's just like a, a a rig, like a carrier. Yep. Uh, And you can do like fishing parts, other kinds of inserts. Yeah. Like a zip top pouch that you, you wear on your chest. It's so you're not a, wasting real estate. Yeah. And not wasting real estate. And, and that's a, I'd make, made a fishing chest rig for years, always with the plan. I built it with Velcro inserts so that you could customize it to how you wanted it. And I always had plans to do a bunch of inserts for it and different accessories, never had the time. And until recently, and finally we kind of reworked it a little bit and started selling it bare and then have a fishing kit that you can set it up for fly fishing or you can set it up for, um, turkey hunting. Um, where one of the things we'll be coming out with is, um, some waterfowl stuff. Um, just some options to make it a little more versatile carry. So if you don't want to wear it on your chest, you don't have to. Um, you think about making a beaver trap and insert? I, I would, if I had some, <laughs> had some insight, I'll, I'll get Rick on that. 
I'll tell you, it needs to have a little liner so that the caster lure doesn't. Uh... <laughs> You'd have at least ten customers. <laughs> right, ten customers. Yeah. Um, I, I got mine. I, I got mine. Many of them. I got mine rigged up for uh, coon and lion hunting. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we've been talking to Clay quite frequently about potential uh, upgrades we could do for for him hunting down there. He's really loving for it. hound hunting. Yeah. Oh yeah, because you got all the whatever GPS shit and all that. Yeah. Yeah, you got a leash in there, and you still got to have a skin and knife. And... and and he's not wearing the big binos, you know, all the time down in that country. So yeah. He's got the real estate. I just took my little eight by twenty fives, which are like the best gear kind of thing I've done in the last year. You got to get a pair. You just don't understand. Really? Until, I don't know what I'm missing out on. Oh man! Yeah, I, oh, eight, I was eight jealous. Eight by honest, during turkey year. season with those things. Eight by twenty-five. Yeah, huh. I'm a ten by fifty man. <laughs> but I can see it. I can see it. Check, try them out. But yeah, we'll have a better way to carry some smaller binos. Um, but hopefully, we'll have a lot of that stuff out in November, um, and then our next big launch probably won't be coming until spring. Um, some of that stuff, uh, my wife, Jen, runs our marketing side of things and brand management, and she'd be upset if I tell you all this. But you know what I'm more, I, I can't believe you won't just talk about what I'm most excited about. Well, you're uh, the rifle sling. Dude, um, this thing is like. You already put it on the Instagram. Uh, I know, but this thing is. <laughs> you got I, in I trouble, that, didn't you? No, no, I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I think, is the coolest thing. I think it's going to, the feedback on it so far has been really good. Um, everybody who's been out testing it. Um, to what degree can I explain it? Well, you already explained it pretty strongly in the... Uh, uh, see, okay. <laughs> so picture, uh, you know when you got your backpack on, how you can't get your... I'm talking to you, the audience, not you, Paul, necessarily, but I'm sure you're aware of this. Right. When you got your backpack on and your rifle sling and your rifle sling won't stay put, I've in the past, I don't know if you've ever seen this, I've in the past taken a big-ass button off an old coat and sewn that big ass button to the top of my shoulder strap so that you had a place to hook your sling. So I sewed it to the top of my backpack shoulder strap and you could like tuck your sling into that button. You picture what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which kind of works, but either way, it's a pain in the ass. But this thing you have, there's like a, an attachment clip. Right. Like what do you call a normal buckle? Side release like a, buckle. Yeah. Side release buckle where you pinch it. Yep. That, the the female end of that hooks to your backpack strap. And then the male end of that is just on your sling. Vice so when, versa. Oh, was it vice versa? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Females on the sling. Okay. Females on the sling. The male's on the backpack. Yep. So when you put your rifle over your shoulder, you can just take one hand and go click. And that some bitch is clicked to, like the top of your sling is clicked to your pack. Yep. And you can do any amount of crit crossing, log jumping. No slippage. No. That's the worst thing about And then when you want man. it down, it's just like you just reach up and it's free in yeah. your hand. Or there's this other thing you can like actually hook it to the bottom of your waist belt too. But that thing just, man, like going up sheep hunting, going up and around junk all the time. I just kept it clicked in. Because the other thing is you don't, you're not like looking for a pull cord or anything. It's just like right there. You just reach up yeah. Very, very fast. And you can walk without holding your sling the whole time. You don't need to hold your sling the whole time. You can hold your trekking poles. Tell you what, man. It's like Nobel Prize. <laughs> I, go I don't know if there's like a Nobel Prize in rifle sling making. I, no, no offense, but that's such a simple innovation that's going to... I'm like, add to cart. I'm ready to push the button because I've struggled with that same thing. And just as you're describing it, it's like... Where's that been all my life? Pull, so, pull up a prepay for Ray here, man. Yeah, yeah. He's ready to go. He's ready to make a purchase. Jen, Jen's working on the, the website. The, uh, <laughs> no, it's um, slick, man. It's slick. And you guys got some other cool stuff that I've had. I've been privy to. Yes. But I don't want to like spill the beans. Right. I know all the stuff like 
it might change. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's all production dependent, <laughs> but we're hoping it all shows up and we'll, we'll be ready to go by early spring on a lot of that stuff. And like the sling, for example, you know, we're, we have it with a bunch of guys here at Meat Eater and, and we're all using it and making sure there's not any last minute changes before we, you know, pull the trigger on a full production run. But you know, what I just heard today about, you know, about like, uh, you're talking about like businessmen, people in manufacturing, like having all these problems with like shipping and all that right yeah. now. I heard today that this thing that there's a huge, like, just, like there's a shipping crisis in this country, particularly import export. Right. But even, even domestic, there's shipping issues. And they're saying that when the, um, infrastructure bill passes that they're anticipating, um, it actually, this just, this is, and I'm not like a subject matter expert on this. If when the infrastructure bill passes, the amount of like shipping and trucking resources that will go into construction because the money's so much better that it's going to worsen, and that you haven't even this is the good old days right now in shipping and transportation in 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 context of what the next couple years could look like. Hmm. Yeah, we've heard that. uh, Like no one's like, oh, we're getting out of it. We've heard that that we should prepare for some some. uh, uh, some of that, those issues, although yeah. it's weird cause we've gone the last 10 years with not being able to keep anything in stock. And right now we have a pretty good <laughs> inventory. <laughs> so we're, we're opposite now. You're, you're bucking the trends. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, next time you come out, we got, we got to talk a whole bunch about, we never, we were going to do it. I don't know what happened about the, the bighorn, the oh, bighorn yeah. hunt. Yeah. I thought about bringing that, uh, head in and I listened, oh, to, a good idea. listened to Giannis bringing his in. What'd you do with the hide on that thing? It's actually, I, so I tried to do a full cape. I was by myself, full body mount. My wife suggested I do a full body mount, which I was going to take her up on and, um, ended up being by myself in in a bad position, ended up doing three quarters, but brought it out. It's all tanned up. I'm going to do a pedestal mount with the reproduction and then Euro, the freedom mount. I'm going to have to get one of these, uh, one of these, uh, desktop. Pedestal. Yeah, I know pedestals. a guy. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. I know if, a guy. Oh, you know, it won't work. I was going to ask, are they? That's the only thing I've found. Like, I, it won't hold a musk ox and it won't, the, the, oh, no, no, no. It'll hold a doll sheep. What am I saying? It holds a, it holds a sheep. But see, those bighorns are so heavy. Yeah. It won't hold a musk ox. I know that. I put, okay, Boy, our no desk mount that we're talking about, you can put, I've put everything from pronghorn we put whitetails of all shapes and sizes, mule deer of all shapes and sizes. It holds everything. I put doll sheep on it. It holds a doll sheep beautifully. But a bighorn's like got a little more, yeah, got a little more grr. <laughs> but I, we, you should throw one on there, Yanni, and see what happens. I will. But yeah, it, it, I, I was wrong. I, I, my, I feel optimistic that it'll hold it. We'll try it out. And then you have it on your desk. Yeah, that's what I want. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. 
Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova's store. Have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, shift the gears here a minute. We're talking to another law enforcement from the fishing game. Fish cops. Fish fuzz. What do you guys call yourselves? Fish fuzz. Fish fuzz. Fish cops, fish fuzz. So uh, let let me reintroduce Sam here because it's got an interesting story. I found out about Sam because when we were working on our close calls, we were like casting, for lack of a better word, for our close calls series and um i was talking to someone i can't remember who i was talking to now and someone's like oh there's this guy he's got this crazy story about the the mud puddle story that like he's alive today uh i don't want to give too many detail away on that one no we played the whole damn thing on the show so yeah yeah, you heard so if you listen to the show regularly you already heard sam's mud puddle story but anyways i found out about him someone told me this story i was like but they, they, they didn't know who it was 
And I think they said something like, whoever it was, I can't remember his name, but I think he uh, went to work for like Pheasants Forever or some shit like that. So I send out a text to a few of my colleagues who are pretty well connected. And I'm like, okay, guy, Arizona, game warden, something to do with a mud puddle and Pheasants Forever. And, <laughs> and like 30 seconds later, I get like a thing like, Sam Laurie, you know? <laughs> and we got in touch and, and we recorded the story. And in the process of doing that, we kept talking about that you had completed a book of like, a really good book of game warden stories and you call it remembering the outlaws and uh and i need full title it's stories of the past so this is uh from 1984 to 2004 an arizona game ranger remembering the outlaws and the basic guy in reading it that i thought was funny is um uh it's almost like you you can correct me on this but it's almost like remembering them fondly <laughs> like you have you have a little bit of a, uh, you got a real soft spot for the yeah. outlaws. Yeah, I think each one of them kind of <laughs> left a little notch in me somewhere, you know. I mean, there was a lot of personalities out there. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I used to tell a lot of these stories to friends and my kids and things, and they always say, Dad, you got to write those down. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was actually when I was working for Feds Forever, because... Uh, we were traveling all over the country and at meetings and evenings at the hotels, I'd write rather than go down to the watering hole. Mm -hmm. It's better for you. And, uh, Fewer headaches. Yeah. It felt a lot better, more productive. That. So, and, uh, but only, you know, I, I, as Paul was saying, you know, he had a desire to become a wildlife uh, game officer. And <clears throat> it's funny. I spoke to the uh, University of Montana Tuesday wildlife class about careers in wildlife. And I said that to them, that when I went to school, uh, the professor stood up and said, two of you out of this class of a hundred will become biologists. The rest of you are going to be car salesmen or lawyers <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, so I was strictly a biologist. I wanted to, I was a waterfowl nut. I went to work for Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Station studying pintails and my whole life was ducks. And I had a, a, a move to Arizona where I ended up uh, doing more work with some big game animals. And a buddy of mine said, you ought to go out for the uh, wildlife officer the game warden jobs. And I didn't want to be a game warden. I thought, no, nah, that's beneath me. And uh, But no, I did. I went to the academy, ended up hiring on. And, uh, you know, as you've probably heard, a lot of people refer to the game warden job as the most dangerous law enforcement job there is. I think yours was, Paul. I mean, we deal with people with guns all the time, but I don't have to do that stuff you guys did all the time with real crime, I guess, if you call it. So, yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, I, as, uh, as the unit manager there, you're also the biologist, so we had to do all the wildlife surveys and, and fisheries management and all that. But you're in charge of a, a big geography um, as also the warden. And uh, that's where those tales started. I I got a real interest in interview and interrogation. I became kind of a specialist in... Yeah, there's a lot about that in the book, man. Like some yeah. kind of like like your approach. Yeah, I like Like you to, don't come in hot. I want, I want you to kind of, uh, I guess... Uh, well, I just want to get the truth out of you. Uh -huh. And uh, and at the end, I can't tell you how many times people pretty much 
told the whole story and thanked me for it because <laughs> they needed to get it off their chest. <laughs> uh, one of the things I like about the book too is uh, maybe you, you're able to do this because you got enough distance from it now, but you kind of lay out. It's a bold move because in the beginning you kind of lay out your sort of violator credentials, <laughs> which which like like you said earlier, man. If you're a passionate hunter and angler, like you just have, yeah, you've broken laws, and you talk about being a kid, and I'm sure there's more. We talk about being a kid and like an uncle saying, don't cross the river. You know, we're not allowed to hunt that side of the river. And how at the end of the day, sure enough, you're on the other side of the river. And it's just, right? Yeah. And I think that, that that you telling that story about yourself and kind of that, you know, in a lot of ways, you're a product of generations ahead of you, you know? Right. And, and I wrote about it in one of my books, man. I mean, um, we, like, I, I grew up around a lot of, game law breaking there were certain inviolable things like there's certain things you just would never do like no one in my family would ever go jack lighting deer right like right. but you would definitely um it was just it they didn't people didn't even go out of their way to like hide it that ma drew a doe tag which means that everybody has a doe tag until ma comes out and puts a doe tag on a deer and it wasn't even like and it wasn't even it's it, like when I was a little kid, it wasn't even like a shh. Yeah. It was just dis- It took me a long time to realize that somehow you weren't supposed to do that. And and I think you kind of acknowledge in a little ways of having like some of that in your upbringing, which probably yeah. leads to that thing of how you had a little bit of a, you never had hate for hunters and anglers. No. And as I said, I think the far majority of them were, were all, you know, good people and, and ethical uh, users of the resource. I, I can't tell you how many, how many times, if, you know, this book focuses on a lot of bad guys, um, but that was one-tenth of one percent of one percent of all the people I contacted. Mm-hmm. And, and when you saw, you know, they're what I call opportunistic poachers, they didn't leave the house that morning to violate a game law, mm. but they got in a situation where they were excited and they, they shot the wrong animal or they, they shot one in a unit they weren't supposed to be in. And, and those guys, uh, they're a dime a dozen. You're going to run into it all the time. What, what I kind of focused on was what are, what is that 1%? Well, I had a, a guy tell me once that every small town or every town has a 1% poacher, mm-hmm. the real bad guy. And uh, those are the ones you kind of want to focus on and spend a lot of attention on trying to, to, to put out a business. If you have, you, have you heard the term? There's a criminologist who had a term super poachers. Yeah, I, I guess like you a could so, call like that. a form of sociopath. See, and those people they're not they're not uh, bothered at all by their activities on the resource. I mean, there's one guy, and I, I don't know if you read the one about the uh, the the lion guy. Yeah. Like setting those baited hooks yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, treble yeah. hooks with meat on them, on steel leaders, to catch anything he could. Yeah. I'll guarantee if that guy's still alive, he's doing something wrong right now for a while. <laughs> yeah. I'll guarantee it. There's no No, I, I got you. You know. And and I think that's one of the things that, that I hope people that read this book might just have a little more inclination to say, you know what, maybe I won't put up with knowing old Bob doing what he's doing yeah, and, and give a call. And well, that, that's like, a, there's a certain egregiousness and you pointed out in that story about the guy with the baited treble hooks where it's like, 
And you, you describe going on the scene, and you can tell where he's caught, like somehow had gotten a lion in right. one. Right. And he's got just like junk out, like meat scraps, and and just it almost like the way you describe it, it's almost like walking into like like kind of like an insanity. It that someone's it, dealing with. It was, and I can tell you this, that was way, way in the backwoods. I mean, we we took a four-wheel drive probably three and a half hours um, before we trailered and got horses and went. We were actually doing a deer survey at the time. And, and when you come across something like that, that far out in the boonies, the guy had no uh, concern at all that they were going to be caught. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, it was such such an egregious uh, act that it, I mean, those are the ones that bother you. And I'm sure Paul, you, you can remember the, the cases that bothered you a lot of times with you guys, it's, it's people, it's children. Yeah. And from a wildlife officer, when you see just an absolute disregard for a critter yeah, uh, and this guy, you know, the arrogance, I can remember interviewing him, you know, from me to you. And this guy was kind of like the old sociopath that looked right through you. No. He didn't give a hoot yeah. what you were about to talk to him about. You can tell in your stories a lot of the guys, um, they, they're they good enough where they immediately go into a game. Like, as you're interviewing them, it becomes, like, everyone in the room knows. But you, the way you describe how all of a sudden their wheels are turning. And they're like, this guy knows. He knows what yeah. I did. But I, I like... Here's, I'm already playing my defense. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's already in the courthouse. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and they're, they're yeah. not like, oh, you got me. And they don't break down in tears, you know, but they're like, okay, I can play this game with you. Well, you know, what was, was always funny to me is, uh, let's just say Steve did something wrong. And Paul called me up and said, hey, Steve shot a deer out of season. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather a little bit of information, but I'm going to go talk to Steve. And I pick up the phone and I call you. This is Steve, Sam Lari with Game and Fish Department. Hey, uh, I just wanted to know if I could meet you this afternoon. Got a few things I wanted to ask you. Um, yeah, uh, I guess after work. Uh, yeah, that'd be fine. I'd show up there and I'd, I'd, I'd come up and, Steve, do you have any idea what I want to talk to you about? And they'd say, well, no. Well, the person that was innocent would always say on the phone, what is it about? Oh. The bad guy already knew what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to talk to him. So the first chink in the old interview process happened before I even got there. He just gave that away. Yeah. It's kind of a kind of a good little one. Yeah, you should have revealed that crime fight. Well, tip. there's so many more though. <laughs> I, I, uh, for my brothers and sisters that are out there still enforcing wildlife laws and other laws, you'll, you'll, you'll replace that uh, trick with another trick. There's many, many more. Uh, there's a funny story you got here where you're out checking. You're like working along a, the shore of a lake checking licenses, and you get to your guy, and he's like, "God, ah, I don't have my license on you, on me." And so, um, you kind of you're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. And you're like, okay, just leave your gear here and just go get your license, you know? And a while goes by, he's like, the guy never comes back. The guy never comes back. The guy never comes back. Eventually, you gather up his gear and tell about how you caught up. Caught, we'll tell you how you caught up with the guy. So there was, uh, that's what we call furtive gestures is when you're, you're shaking. You know, if someone asked you for your fishing or hunting license today, 
you're going to be shaken when you get it out of your wallet. Yeah, no matter what. Just no matter what. Yeah, because you're like, I don't know, maybe I did something wrong. Oh, and you love it. Yeah. You just love it. No, I'm just kidding on that. <laughs> so uh, there was furtive gestures, a little bit of excess with this particular guy. And I <laughs> thought, boy, there's something wrong here. And I, the, the old warrant is what's hitting me in the head. And anyway, well, he has a warrant. Well, man. that's what I'm thinking yeah. now, because there's more to this than blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah, he says it's in his glove box, and there's a bunch of other fishermen on the shore. And I said, "Well, I'll just continue on checking these guys, and and then I'll I'll you, know, you could come back here, and leave your gear here." Well, he never came back, and so I gathered up his gear and started walking back to my patrol truck. And up the trail I go, and a little branch fell. <laughs> I looked down on the ground, a little five-inch hunk of oak leaf, and. And I could kind of, what the heck? And I looked up there and there he was. <laughs> he was hanging on that like a gibbon. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember his name, but I, I summoned him. Come on down out of that tree. You know? <laughs> this is just a fishing violation, you know. And, and uh, I don't want you falling out of here. Yeah, I think long story short, I think he did have a warrant. And he I think he got a little right. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. not too bad. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another, I'm going to lay out another game warden trick you guys got. That, that, I guess it, you told in the book, so I can tell it. Uh, that when, this kind of surprised me a little bit. When game draws come out, so limited tag draws, that you like to go, one, you go see if you got anything. <laughs> and then you like to see, did any... Do do our known violators, do our one percenters, <laughs> have our one percenters drawn any tags? Right. But of more interest to you is have our have our one percenters had a mother who drew a very coveted big game tag. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I just have a feeling it's not his but mom in, but in who's Ari- hunting. <laughs> but in Arizona, a mom could give it to him, right? No. No, you have to shoot the animal with the tag, and there's no there's no buddy hunting. Is Alaska it maybe transferable now in some way? Uh, yeah, because I think I know a lot of people who's who have their spouses apply when they get enough points, and they just train the kids. There might be some new regulation associated with kids or something, but oh, I thought I, it was I any like doubt. kin. Well, the reason I think that he was right at the time is he tells the whole damn story and then arrested the guy. Mm. Well, you you have these, yeah, you have a few red flags. But remember, this is some time ago where, you know, you look at an officer's car now and there's a laptop there. Yeah. You know, we had this hard printout and you'd go through it and find, oh, there's so-and-so's grandma. And and, uh, you'd pull into camp and... You know, there's no grandma to be found, <laughs> you know, and so you, you kind of push it a little further. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I mean, everybody says, so wait a minute, just buddy hunting. They allow that in all kinds of states. And, but where they don't allow it, you know, and, and you could get into this, it's based on the, the models for, for genuining the permit numbers. And, and it's based on the, the harvest. And if you're just an outstanding hunter and you can shoot five elk, that's going to disrupt the model that they're putting together that generates the permit number. And so you need to you need to follow the follow the law in those cases. 
outstanding hunter or unethical hunter who shoots five elk. Right, and I think you know this is uh, you know a pitch, if I will, to 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 all of your listeners is is you know there's little teeny uh, pieces of information that come across to wildlife officers or law enforcement officers in general that you might not think as much. Uh, I I pulled into a gas station last night and I noticed there was some blood on a bumper. Uh, it's not hunting season. Well, the either guy did something wrong, uh, you know, maybe maybe did something to his a uh, human, or there's some kind of wildlife infraction. Drive the license number down and, and just call. And and uh, you know there were many cases that we made that we were looking for the shooter of an animal. And lo and behold, someone called and gave us just that little piece we needed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if more people did that, uh, you'd see a, a little bit uh, less of, of some of the things going on. But one of the things I, I, I have to say, too, and this goes back to that whole thing with law enforcement and and uh, the, the, the feelings about law enforcement these days. And in order for people to come forward and say, hey so-and-so did this, they have to trust you. And and so the, the wardens, both the, the male and, and female wardens out there, really have to build that community trust so that you will go talk to them and know that that's not going to come back to haunt you. And uh, I think uh, they do a great job at that. And uh, my hat's off to all the, the uh, wildlife enforcement officers nationwide that go out there every day and try to do the right thing. Because as you know, all of you from Meat Eater, the seven principles of the North American model. I can't name them all, but I know I'm aware of them. Number one. Well, let's just go to number four is allocation by law. Okay. And so the, the permit structure is allocated and regulated by law. And uh, obviously it's public trust, all that information, the other pillars but if you take that one pillar away, the model's broken. Yep. So it's just as important as game populations need to be managed by science, right? Yep. Just as important as equal opportunity for all. It's just as important as no commercial harvest that will impact a population. So don't break the pillars down. That's what I told people. Yeah. There's an interesting story Uh that has to do with those. I was reminded of it when you're talking about the subtle cues. But I remember you were talking to a guy, and and you just noticed that uh, blood under his fingernails as you're talking to him. You're like, why does this guy got blood under his fingernails? And I, I think it was the guy that turned into these guys had this huge bear, huge bear that they killed illegally. And what was funny is you you confiscate the bear, and their last request is, can they get a quick grip and grin? And you let them get a grip and grin. <laughs> And I'll guarantee you that picture is sitting somewhere on somebody's wall. He's yeah. like, just can we just please get a grip and grin? All right, get a grip and grin, then I'm out of here with your bear. Well, and you got you got to do that because how are you going to load a 400 pound bear? You know, they had to help me. <laughs> before you had to keep him on your side. Oh yeah, yeah before I drove off. I like too because the guy's like. It was just an explanation for his actions. Uh, it was just so big. It, was, <laughs> it ran across the road, and we had to shoot it. It was just. Don't you feel a little bit like they got what they wanted out of the deal with by getting a picture? 
Did well, they really want the hide and the meat? Oh that bad? yeah, they wanted that trophy, and who knows, they wanted the baculum to boot. But they, <laughs> they, uh, they want, but to, a little trophy. And these guys, now those are some of the ones that you can actually look back and laugh. Yeah, because they weren't a threat to me, or they probably weren't going to ever do it again. Right. But they got caught. Yeah. So Sam, yeah. it was just so big, <laughs> so big. I, so. One of the easiest ways that I see these, these dumbasses getting caught today is they post this stuff to social media. So it doesn't take a lot of detective work yeah. to see a guy post them with a, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, what was maybe, you know, in the days you probably were coming in on very much the, the beginning points of any kind of a flip phone, you know, people taking cameras, sure, stuff like sure. that. What was sort of the, the dumbass approaches to getting caught? You know, you were doing some detective yeah. work there with blood of the fingers and things like that. You had to, you had to be sort of aware of your surroundings, but... What were some of the egregious ways that people tried to get caught? Um, you know, it was just they couldn't keep quiet. Mm. And, you know, you'd, you'd uh, you, you, in certain instances, you'd work uh, undercover, unmarked, and go to a couple different taverns and uh, get right in there amongst them. Oh, really? Just yeah. for oh, an yeah. evening, spend an evening at a popular bar with hunters? Yeah, and you start, you know, throwing out, oh, bear hunting and guiding, or you know, I want to get into this, and... Oh, you need to talk to Bob. You know, what are you guys doing here? Oh, we're looking, we're real estate folks from California looking for some property to invest in. And and then all of a sudden you start hearing all kinds of stuff. Back then you, you really. I don't, I don't imagine that being the pathway into hearing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I mean, I know you mentioned that in the story that you, when you're undercover, but. Well, if you're, if you, I mean, a, a lot of those undercover ones in the book were specific. I was working a guy. Oh, I, I okay. Yeah. So your story is tailored to it. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if you were, uh, you know, let's just say living in a small town and you had suspicions about you, but I knew you hung out at whatever, two lanes, I'd send an undercover officer in there to, to work you. Buy him a couple of beers of truth serum and away you go. some pool with him. Yeah. Find out what he's all about. Yeah. Uh, you know? Uh, you know, another funny thing is you guys had that deal where you're working an illegal reptile enthusiast. <laughs> had like all these illegal snakes and stuff hiding in his walls uh. and stuff like that. But it was funny that he, there's like a very small detail you mentioned in the book is he kept his weed in a break open shotgun. That was like his, his hiding place was in his gun. <laughs> Right, so it's it like such a weird place yeah. to hide your weed. Well, so when you break open a shotgun, it's all in the barrel. Well, it's Paul. Knows, you cops know, will you never, know. cops will never look here. You go into a search warrant. You you make the place safe, right? So the first guy's through the door. We put this guy in a handcuffs, and he was in his bikini underwear. I'll never forget that. A sickening sight. <laughs> Uh, but then we had to make the place yeah, safe. Yeah, seems like you're going to go grab, check the guns. <laughs> well, we just, everything. You're looking for everything, you know. And, and here's this gun leaning against the bed, and we cracked it open to make sure there wasn't a shell in the chamber. And what's that baggie in there? And that was just dope. So, uh, yeah, that was a bizarre one. Now, you talk about strange. Yeah. You know, Like, tell people about what he had. So uh, he had uh, uh, just uh, 500 different kinds of reptiles, and I'm not a reptile guy. And all the food for him and everything, man. When you walked in that house, your eyes burnt from the ammonia, from all the mice that he was feeding these critters. And uh, anyway, we had some undercover officers work him that uh, he had two gaboon vipers, which are nicknamed the one-step snake. 
they bite you, you get one step and you're done. Oh, wow. And so I was the search team lead on that one, and I had four or five officers in there, and I didn't want any of them get bit by one of these darn things. And and uh, we couldn't find them. We had fishing poles. We were flipping out dirty clothes. And for some reason, Paul, why were the search warrants always in the worst places you can imagine? Uh, it's, I don't know. I think it's uh, just what they do. It, it, they're awful. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't even know. Every search warrant we did, it was like, ugh. I need another set of gloves on top of my gloves. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, Gloves, gloves, and gloves, and... Both their houses and their cars. Oh, just terrible. People who are inclined to have a search warrant issued for them tend to be messy. I'd say on a more than general rule. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, very seldom did you enter a really plush place. And they bring their their sex toys everywhere. Oh, Oh, is that right? Really? yeah. Huh. That's why when you when you when you write the warrant, you know you're you're pretty wide open in the areas that you can search. And of course, for wildlife, you're you're specific. I'm looking for an elk, or I'm looking for these snakes. But you also are looking for records and mm-hmm. and photographs. And when you when you start looking through the photographs and and things of that nature, you see exactly what Paul's talking about. Oh, some of that kind of stuff, especially with a snaker. Well, then you probably wind up, I, I want to get back to the story, but you, you probably wind up with like collateral damage, right? Because you're in looking for snakes, but you can find certain crazy shit that yeah. all of a sudden becomes like its own thing, right? So if it's in plain view, right when you walk in, here's a big bowl of pot uh, back then anyway, that was, you know, you could collect that with the uh, with, uh, search warrant. If I'm looking for records and I go through uh, whatever his desk and find something, then if it's, you know, let's just say it looks like a big baggie of dope, I'd stop and go have one of you guys go oh, get a warrant for that. Yeah. I got you. We, we, got you. we would yeah. do the same thing if you came across something in a place you could look, but it wasn't what you were looking for. We would stop and get a, a separate search warrant. Right. I'm that. with you. So this guy. Like you use that as your probable cause or whatever the hell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once we're in the door and it's written down in a, a reasonable place to look for it, it's open. Yep. Um, but this guy's Gaboon Vipers were nowhere to be found. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a, a Tucson Police Department uh, officer there with arms about the size of an oak tree. And I walked up to the the bad guy. And I said, look at, I got a bunch of officers in here. We're looking for these snakes. We know they're here and, uh, I need you to cooperate with us. Where are the snakes? I'm being Mr. Nice guy again. And, uh, the Oak tree guy came up and grabbed him by the head and gave him a little encouragement. And he said, they're behind the dresser in the bedroom. There's a hole in the wall. <laughs> and sure enough, we, we moved the dresser and here was a little round piece of plywood and you could spin it to the side and there's a hole in the wall of the drywall. And that's where he keeps them. That's the weirdest that's thing, man. Kept him. And we had a herpetologist. Do you think he threw them in there when the, someone banged on the door? Was that like their height? No, like... that's where he had them because there was droppings and all kinds of stuff in there. It seems like they could get you at night on just that. So like, just so weird. crawl out of sleep. <laughs> but I, I literally said, okay, well, that's really, well, he, the herpetologist uh, grabbed, asked for a mirror and he's, he gets a mirror and a flashlight and he looks and lo, oh, there they are. They're beautiful. And oh my <laughs> goodness. And, and I said, well, you're going to have to get them out of there. 
pretty darn quick or I'm taking a sledgehammer and knocking this wall down and we're going to get rid of these things. Uh, oh, no, no, give me a chance. Long story short, he, he asked for a couple of white mice and started dangling them by the tails in the hole. And all of a sudden, he's, I was holding the mirror and here they come. They're coming after those mice. And he had the tongs and just snagged them up. In that in the book in there, there's a picture of me walking out with a box for those two gaboon vipers. <laughs> and I don't want to ever and see was, those again. He was getting in trouble just for like illegal wildlife traffic. So yeah, they, they were. He was selling, uh, you know, commercialized uh, uh, trafficking of, of not only endangered species but prohibitive wildlife. Mm. And it was it was really important they got these gaboons because they're from South Africa in a very similar climate. And, uh, you know, they could have been all over Arizona, who knows, but, uh, yeah, that was a creepy one. Uh, one more, I got, I got a couple more just general questions, um, about how, uh, advice from you to hunters and anglers about how to interact with game wardens, which I think we should talk about, but I want to bring up one thing is you, you, uh, you talk a lot about experiences with like robo deer and robo turkeys and whatnot, which seems like a hell of a lot of fun. You know, like I told you earlier, I was an avid duck hunter and sitting in a blind watching a decoy <laughs> is better than shooting ducks. Uh, so we had turkeys and we had elk and we had deer. And it was, we, we always put them out in areas where it was just going to be a no brainer that you had an intention to illegally take this critter. And, and so the unit was closed, for example, to turkeys. And we put a turkey out and we had robotics in them so you could move them with a little, you know, gyro. And truck comes by and comes to a hauling screen. Yeah, but it sounds like, like it'd be like when you set these things up, it's like the first set of headlights. You're like, oh, here comes one. And then sure enough. You know, it's just... it, it was pretty predictable. <laughs> it was pretty predictable. And, you know, and, and I think you I mean, the scary part of that was that what we found, which actually we kind of got a policy out to all the wildlife agencies. Yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you about. You know, yeah. The decoys were new. We were we were one of the first agencies to use them. And, you know, there was, uh, we had to go through all the county attorneys and judges to to make sure it wasn't considered entrapment. Yeah, you know, let me, because like, I feel like I, I didn't set this up properly, just real quick. What we're talking about is they can take, so let's say it's illegal to hunt deer at night. These guys will take a a, a decoy. And they'll actually make it robotic, so it's head'll move and stuff. And you just set it out, so you just wait for some guy to come out and start shooting at the deer at night. Or you go to an area that you can't hunt turkeys, but they'll just put a turkey decoy out and wait for some guy to drive down the road and try to kill the thing. And um, and then yeah, speak to the entrapment thing because I I always feel like it's a little bit like you're kind of like tempting people, right? So the 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 courts and the county attorneys were. Or, uh, they encouraged us highly. Don't put a big rack on a mule deer. Mm. Don't make it a trophy because now you're crossing that line of possibly entrapment. God, it's the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life. I had to shoot it. Mm -hmm. So we would use little forked horns. Gotcha. Um, and and really the, the, the few cases that I actually went to trial on um, they always came out that we didn't put the gun in your hand. Okay. If I stood there along the road and said, look at that, it's a buck, and, and shoot see, I got gun. a gun, here's my gun. 
Yeah. Now, you know, clear entrapment, but, um, yeah, we were doing a night, uh, deer operation one evening and, and up in the white mountains and it was on, a, you, you put these decoys on a turn of the road. So when the headlights came around a 90 degree turn, uh, the illumination of the eyes hit. Yeah. And you'd have to and place it. So you had a good backdrop. Backdrop. Yeah. You didn't, and you'd, you'd do a, a lot of recon to make sure there were no camps around or ricocheted bullets could hit a trailer or whatever and pick the spot and uh, then set the set the decoy up and and we'd have a blind right where you suspected the vehicle would stop on the other side of the road so you could hear them and then we'd have a patrol rig ready to go two uniformed officers about a quarter of a mile away hidden ready to respond with the vehicle so we're watching this truck parks and these guys get out and uh we, we, in this case, there was the blind with the people observing them. And then me and this other officer were about a hundred yards away. Um, actually we were with that, the, the vehicle to catch them. Mm -hmm. And, but we're looking at them with binoculars and we can see this guy coming towards the decoy and it's dark. And then all of a sudden I'm looking and my partner's looking and I say, good God, Kim, he's aiming at us. And when the store uh, case was all done and we apprehended them, we asked him and he said, yeah, there was a pair of deer eyes on the other side of the road too. <laughs> the reflection of your binos. Yeah. Yeah. So we immediately got out a thing to all the agencies saying mm. no binoculars on nighttime decoy operations. Yeah. You can see that being a little dicey. Yeah. Yeah. Tell about the guy you had. The guy you had that was approaching a turkey when the turkey's head flew off. So that was funny that the, the, the guy actually responded when we stopped him. We were, the, the, whoever was running the decoy was a little bit vigorous and, and knocked the head off the decoy. And the, the guy stopped and uh, he was in pursuit of it. And we started approaching him. Hey, hold up, game and fish. And the guy looked, hey, Sam, is that you? I said, well, yeah, and you know, in a small town, I knew most of the people. I said, "What do you, what do you do?" Oh, I knew it was a decoy, and, and I said, "Well, uh, you got a shotgun in your hand. Oh, it's not loaded." And he leans down, and he's got it leaning right on his toe. And I said, "Well, let's just make sure unload. Boom! It goes <laughs> off. Gravel shoots everywhere, and so that and the guy was a hunter safety yeah. instructor." That looks bad. It was kind of bad. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So you ran into a ball. So it, uh, what, like ba based on all your experience doing that, um, give us tips, hunters and anglers, tips for how to, how to engage with, uh, how to engage with wardens in a way that just makes, de you know, decreases tension like whatever, like if you had to give people some advice, oh, you're getting your license checked. Here's a couple pieces of advice. Good question. Uh, number one, I would just say, know that that officer put on underwear the morning, the same morning as you did. Mm. He's a human being and they're out doing a job and it's okay to be a little nervous because everyone is, even if I get pulled over, uh, on, a, on the streets and I'm looking for my registration or something, I'm fidgety. 
So it's okay, but just recognize that they're out there um, and they're, they're a human being just like you. So it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be nervous. You don't take nervousness as a sign that, like, you don't take nervousness as a sign that they must be guilty. I almost look at it the opposite. If you're too <laughs> cocky, something's wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, or, or but a lot of people are. Paul, I know you've seen it where they're, they're, they're calm with you. They've been through it a time or two. Uh-huh. And uh, this is nothing new to them where, you know, all of a sudden, I don't know how, have you ever been checked by a game officer, Ray? Uh, not in a long time, but yeah. Yeah. Were you nervous? Uh, yeah, I was in my twenties. So, uh, yeah. was, was quite nervous even though I hadn't done anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, oh, t- yeah, at that age, you like, when you see a cop, you like turn the radio down. Right. Like you're just generally nervous. Yeah. You know? Hands on the steering wheel. Ten and two. Cold Ten sweat. Two. Right. Ten and two. But you know, you, you, I, I try to calm your nervousness. I'd say they're human beings. Yeah. Um, if you're not doing anything wrong, there's nothing to worry about. What, how, how do you feel about the guy that when you pull up, he's already got his license out? Well, he's either been through the routine a couple times. Uh, for example, if you check a, a, a common lake and you see a bunch of fishermen and you park and start walking down, there there were people that literally would have their license And out. you don't take that as a sign of no, something or another? No, you're good. You're okay. good. I'd even look with binoculars. We'd pull up on watercraft and come to a shore and just look at you. Hold your license up and you're good. Okay. But you saw me approaching and all of a sudden your chair folded up and you started going up the hill. <laughs> I kinda oh, that's the other thing he mentions. This is our trick. The, is the like, bite was off. He talks about coming down to a lake. He's always real curious and who has to get to their rod very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd always, we'd always take a non-uniformed warden and put, if there's a row of a hundred fishermen, yeah, yeah. a non-uniformed officer would go down on the other end. Just to watch. Just sit there. Just to see who really needs to tend yeah. to their ride. <laughs> and then now I come out and I make a big display. I pull right up onto the boat ramp. Yeah, yeah. Get out, start walking. Whew, here's three or four of them headed out. You gotta go. <laughs> Wife just called. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the funny thing about getting your license out is you want to get it out, but then I always think that the, the warden's going to be like, well, well, why do you think I need to, like, like, it's a little presumptuous. Like, how do you know that's what I want? How, how do you know? So then you stand there like, should I offer it? Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it, it's also awkward, man. Well, it is, a lot of it has to do with the communication of the officer. Uh-huh. You, know, I, you always, immediately you'd come down and hopefully you're going to say, how's it going today? Nice day out here, isn't it? You, you want to hear that from a person? Yeah, babe, talk to them a little bit. If you walk up and it's an immediate... You know, hey, I need to see your license. Oh, you're saying you'll ask them how yeah. it's going. Yeah, start yeah. out, talk to them a little bit. And, yeah. and how's it going? See, you got a couple of fish there. Does yeah. a warden want the hunter-angler to be chatty? At times, you're pretty lonely out there, so it doesn't, you know. Okay. If you, so uh, if you're like, hey, how's it going? That doesn't, no, that doesn't set no. off a red flag. No. I mean, you could detect if there's something not quite making sense here. This is a little false. Yeah. You, you could feel it. How, what was your attitude towards self-reporting? Were, did you, were you, did you actually, were you actually able to be lenient to people that would self-report? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So what, what, and, and again, even and with that note, you know, if, if you make a mistake out there, uh, you know, turn yourself in. It's, it's the way to go. And there, there might be a couple of horror stories out there where, uh, you wish you hadn't, mm-hmm. but uh, if, if the officer finds out some other way and that you shot the wrong deer or you, you, you did whatever you did, 
then things are going to go a little harder. We had the luxury at least to work with our county attorneys. And in many cases, we just had JPs that we could talk What's to. What's that mean? Uh, Justice of the Peace was the judge. Okay. And we could go in and see the judge and go, I want you to know this was an accident. Um, and you know, the person called me, I showed up, we got the animal salvaged and then, you know, uh, donated. Um, so I just want you to know that I didn't, you know, a lot of times they'd ask you, well, yeah. what do you want to do? What do you think? Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what I was going to say, even on my side over there, that the same way, somebody would self-report something or have an accident was cooperative and just wanted to do the right thing. Even if a ticket got written, you had those conversations with the prosecutors and the judges and say, this is not the guy that needs to, you yeah, know, have right. the book thrown at him. We need to, and a lot of times they just get, you know, dismissed or, or, uh, you know, if you don't get in trouble for six more months, it'll go away. Um, so yeah, by far the best way to deal with it was just to be upfront about it. Yeah. Sam, you tell another story where this has a little bit to do with like, per, like discretion or, 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 you know, individual by interview. I was not thinking the right way to put it, but, um, where you're able to take like a level of subjectivity to what's going on. And you talk about going into a, a, a I think it was an antelope poaching incident, but going into a home and extreme poverty, no food, already ate the thing like that. You ended up approaching that a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because, um, as we said, a lot of times when you uh, uh, conduct a search warrant, the, the places are, are less than, uh, let's just say, the nicest places you've ever seen. And yet, I didn't have that kind of feeling when I was issuing a search warrant. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the case you're referring to, uh, it was a, an antelope that was allegedly poached. And... When we got to the location, I mean, these people were hurting. There yeah, I remember you said no running water, and they were cleaning a jackrabbit in the sink. There were there were flies all over the kitchen, and about four jackrabbits in the sink, and uh, no running water. Uh, kids outside playing in dirt. Uh, the meat that we found uh, was wrapped in in more of an ice box. It wasn't you know kept fresh. Mm -hmm. Uh, so whatever they kill, they're going to eat probably that week. So you got to make a call to yourself. Am I getting out of, am I writing a ticket? Yeah. You know, or what, what are we going to do here? And it was also a young kid. I yeah. I remember you like, just telling the mom, like, you got to talk to your boy. <laughs> I don't want to come back out here. I don't want to, you know, we're, we're leaving. Yeah. But I'm going to put you in touch. There's a lot of programs out there that can help you people and, and programs that can give you food. And, you know, the wildlife resource out here is sparse and you can't do what you're doing. Yeah. So I don't want to come back. You know, that, do we, do we understand each other? Are we good? And, and no, it was kind of, it was a left. touching story, man. Oh, it was, that yeah. was, yeah. You went home that night and hugged your kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good, man. So, uh, tell people how to, tell people how to find the book. Well, it's funny because, uh, when I did the, Bud Puddle story yep. for the, the Campfire Tales, Savannah told me to uh, give her my Instagram. Okay. I said, I bought my wife an Instapot. <laughs> I don't know what an Instagram is. So my daughter set up an Instagram account. Okay. 
is it proper? It says at Sam Lowry. Oh yeah, hell yeah. And on there is a link. So you wound up getting at Sam Lowry. Someone else didn't have that. No, I got it. No, that's cool. Yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> have you ever checked it out? Yanni will check for us. Yanni, check it out. At Sam Lowry. And, and How do you spell it? S-A-M-L-A-W-R-Y. So that's on there. Okay. Uh, and, and, and she told me to say, uh, you can find a link on there to buy it. Uh, uh, these proceeds from anything I make on this go to my kids because she did the pencil drawings in it. Got it. And my daughter put it together through that account. So it's their project now. Yeah. My stories are out there and I hope people enjoy it. And if they want to get it for a a stocking stuffer, go for it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So again, uh, the title stories of the past an Arizona game ranger, remembering the outlaws by Sam Laurie. And of course also, uh, Paul Lewis, you support Paul, go to FHF. Yep. FHF gear, man. Fish hunt fight. Yep, yes indeed. American made uh accessories, all kinds of cool shit. More stuff coming out. Anything else, Yanni? You good? Feeling I'm, good? I'm good. Thank you. All right, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meateater to learn more.